here and uh, this is going to be a special bonus episode of Afterglow. Uh, probably not doing the 15 minute thing this go around. It's probably going to run a lot longer. You've already seen the title and uh, we've got a guest on. If you want to introduce yourself, uh, plug your show and we'll go from there. Hey Chris, thanks a lot, man. Uh, Scott from Retro Gaming Roundup. Um, you know, our podcast has been around now since 2009. Uh, UK Mike and I, the other surviving co-founder uh he and i created it coming out of you know retro gaming radio back in like 2000 god 2007 or no 2006 we started with that so uh, you know pretty much just myself i've been a a lifelong collector i guess i was a retro gaming collector before it was called retro gaming and uh, you know got into the whole uh, arcade and pinball thing too and uh, just uh, this stuff's been a part of our life. We've had the good fortune to do some pretty amazing things like, you know, running the expo we love, creating our own Atari game, uh, sitting down with, uh, you know, every one of the guys that designed the hardware and the software that we love. So we got a lot of interviews and all that. So once and only once you have listened to all of Chris's content, should you go over and listen to our stuff. But we have some cool stuff. I cannot push uh, Retro Gaming Roundup enough. They have a huge back catalog. They've got some amazing interviews with some of gaming's luminaries. Uh, Scott, with his segment on the hardware flashback, uh, he will go into some deep detail. Uh, he keeps it interesting, though. It, it's not a dry segment. It's something to where you'll always learn something. But at the same time, you'll always be interested and want to listen in for more. Uh, they do a top ten every episode. It's always hugely entertaining to listen to. We got there's news, there's interviews. Uh, they've got a, a former developer for Ocean that has a special segment every month. It's always highly entertaining to listen to. I cannot push it enough. If you enjoy my content at all, you'll enjoy Retro Gaming Roundup ten times more. And I believe that is www.retrogamingroundup.com. Correct. That's us. All right. Awesome. So today, uh, I wanted to get Scott on here because he grew up in the same era I did. Uh, he actually got in a little bit before me, but I want to talk about one of the granddaddies of gaming, the Atari 2600, which Scott not only grew up with this system, but later in life even helped to create a new game for this system, which is really cool. <laughs> it was. It was. And, you know, the, the thing for us growing up with that system is we, we didn't know what it was going to be. Uh, we didn't know. Uh, hell, I mean, we didn't even know video games were going to be a lifelong thing. In fact, there was a, a reasonable, uh, you know, in hindsight, it seems not reasonable. But at the time, there was a reasonable suspicion that video games may have been a fad, a flash in the plan, pan, a a temporary technology, which sounds just crazy right now when you think about, you know, what consoles are, what computers are. Um, 
And it, 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 at one point we thought, okay, that may be it. You know, when, when the crash happened and you went into a, a store and they simply said, you're like, Hey, where's the video game aisle? Cause it used to be over here. Oh, we don't sell those anymore. And you thought, Oh, well, I guess that's over. And you know, it, 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 of course the Nintendo revolution relaunched the whole industry, but it started a lot sooner than we think. Cause you know, for a lot of us that grew up, you know, in that seventies, eighties thing, um, we didn't even know like the Odyssey existed because we were like three, you know, and it came into our consciousness later that, you know, oh, there were things before the Atari. And then once you get serious into collecting, you're like, oh, crap, you know, there were things, a lot of cool things before the Atari. And that, you know, in 72, the video game industry was largely born, but it was actually kind of dated back to 71 in a way. So what you had was, you know, Computer Space and Odyssey were both like literally you had the first arcade game, which nailed the formula. It was a, you know, stand up. I love a monitor, you know, waist height control panel instructions, the name on a marquee that was lit an attract mode where the game played itself idly and sound. And none of that was necessarily guaranteed to be baked into the first arcade game. And then you get into, uh, the first console, the Odyssey, uh, you know, similar thing. But it, 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 none of these things ran software. They were logic machines. They didn't have any general purpose computer processing code. It was just logic, counters and gates, as Ted Dabney, the, the creator of Computer Space, always said. And uh, yeah, man, like, so by the time the Atari arrived, it was actually, you know, the second gen, and it was the first real generation of what's called, you know, a general purpose computer, which means, you know, it could run any code that was written for it that could fit within that memory space and, you know, other qualifiers. But, you know, it didn't only run narrow specified applications or solve one equation. It could run general code. And that's the era, you know, that the Atari, uh, you know, in concert with the Channel F, which is largely forgotten, but in 77, that's what the whole thing was ushered in by. And the Atari, honestly, in my opinion at least, it was amazing what developers got out of that thing. Especially if you look at the early game releases versus the late game releases. There is a stunning difference in what a developer could manage to squeeze out of that thing. Like Even games that people crap on. Let's take E.T., which I do not think is a bad game. I know I'm in the minority on that. I don't think E.T. is a bad game. I think it's misunderstood and people don't know how to play it. But graphically, that game, at least in my opinion, is amazing for being on the 2600 if you compare it to something like Combat. And, and that's you, you make an interesting point there that kind of if you, if you turn it, you know, 90 degrees and look at it from a different angle. All systems dramatically differ in late production games from early production games. But it's kind of like that difference gets narrower and narrower as we go. If you look at like a first release PS4 game and a late release PS4 game, yeah, there's differences. And, but there's no more tricks to learn. You know, what? No, when I say there's no more tricks to learn, you're not, you know, tricking the hardware into doing something it can't do. You don't have access to the hardware. You may learn some additional tricks with the API, you know, so that you can do a, you know, one call faster than another if you do this or do that. But ultimately, you're not tricking the video card into, like, rewriting its memory twice in a cycle so you can do some 
you know, trick. That's not available anymore. So if you go backwards in video game history, it actually, the difference between generations, you know, the first launch games and the last launch games was much more dramatic. Like you look at back, say, the Nintendo Entertainment System. If you look at the, uh, say, Balloon Fight and, uh, you know, Mario Brothers, the early games, and then you go look at Mario 3, Mario 3 looks like a Super Nintendo game. Huge goal, right? Yeah, absolutely. Atari. Oh, yeah, the Atari being before the Nintendo had an even bigger goal. If you look at something like, uh, you know, Neubauer's um, games, you know, uh, gosh, Solaris, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you look at a late release game like that and you compare it to an early release game, that they're, they're different systems. I mean, they are visually so different. And all those were hardware tricks, not so much software exploitation. Some of them were, but, you know, they learned how to squeeze every bit. So those differences in early release and late release were just so dramatic, you know. Not but only one that. One thing about the Atari. Go ahead. No, after you, sir. Go ahead. Uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up, like design they completely nailed. Like, we, we brought up, like, the uh, Channel F earlier, but if you compare the controller for a Channel F versus the controller for an Atari, you got much more of that arcade feel out of that Atari controller. Oh, by far. And there's two things about that, that sort of development cycle in an era that really stand out to me. You know, that was the first time that, you know, like, if we said... You know, you know, just general American slang. Hey, uh, I'm going to the fridge. Can you grab me a Coke? It could mean a 7-Up, a Sprite, a Pepsi. It's a generic word for soda. Now, it varies regionally. Some places it's a pop. Or so, but in, in general, like, if your friend from elsewhere was there, even if your local region calls it a pop, and he says, hey, you got any Coke in the fridge, he, you, you would know he meant soda, right? Mm -hmm. And that's how it was with the uh, Atari 2600. Is it even like at the time, you know, like 82, I owned a ColecoVision. That was a system I got. And we would still say, hey, we're going to go to my house and play Atari. Atari was, had become synonymous with video games, even if you had a different system. And the, the other thing, that, and this is kind of like a three-legged stool here. You got the, the cool part of, you know, the, the, the Atari exploitation of how they figured out how to get more out of the hardware how synonymous with video games that the Atari became. And then the other thing that I think is neat is how slow of a start compared to other systems that the Atari really got. I mean, so it came out 77 and it wasn't the, it was not hit off the bat. It, it wasn't because, you know, to the consumer, the technology underneath, they don't really care. So the early Atari games, their technology that let them play, say, Pong, was the visual impact was no different than Pong or the Odyssey that had come before. So you didn't see a dramatic difference. You saw kind of the same games that had for, just for a higher price point, right? And so you as a consumer did not care that that was a general purpose computer executing code compared to, you know, just logic arrays. You just knew it cost more and did the same thing. But it had the potential, it had the capability to do so much more. And it really, it was, uh, you know, Space Invaders that came around, and that kind of gave it a bump. And then, like, 80, 81 hit, 
And that's when it really started to take off. So, you know, it, it was almost, you know, five, six years into the Atari 2600 history before it really had its monstrous household name status that, you know, it later had. So that's that to me, that's just kind of an inter- interesting piece of its history. Well, it was an amazingly long lived system, too, because everyone remembers the NES in its heyday, but you could still buy brand new in box 2600 games in the store at the same time that you could buy NES games. Like, I distinctly remember getting a copy of Atlantis. And uh, they were dirt cheap at this point. I think it was during the, uh, I think they had re-released the 2600 along with the 7800, if I remember correctly. But uh, Oh, I... yeah. Now, it, it, if you want to do this chronologically, um, I got back up just a tad before I, you know, you know, you, you, you had mentioned when you reached out to me, you wanted to kind of talk about, talk about history and memories of it yeah um for me you know the atari like so i you know i got an apple II late 77 and i'm like you know six years old you know five years old and you know i i just you know i i was asking for a solder and iron in kindergarten it was just something about that i knew i wanted and you know to my parents credit they were pretty forward thinking about this stuff and they weren't technologists but they were like, hey, if our kid's asking for a computer and he actually knows what he's asking for and why and he's not started first grade yet, let's let's look into this. So, you know, when the Atari came along, you know, I was certainly conscious of it. And, you know, a lot of friends, more and more friends started getting Ataris. Their older brothers, they would have Ataris. And, you know, so you grew up, even if, like, I did not yet have my own Atari, by 80, 81, you were a watch in Atari. You even maybe had some Atari games if you didn't have an Atari. And it was just this, you know, world of Atari surrounding you. So I did that. And then, you know, 82, I got a ColecoVision. And a couple months later, I think it was that summer, I got my first, you know, Atari 2600. And the Coleco was, you know, superior in technology. But the Atari had such a library and such a social you know, presence. It was, you know, the rituals of like that era, like, you know, we would meet up with our friends at the arcade. Sure. Yeah. And that Sunday we'd be at the, the skating rink, you know, uh, you know, and that had a huge, huge arcade in it for, you know, I grew up in a small crappy town in Mississippi and the skating rink had like 50 arcade games in there. So I got, uh, you know, Monday morning, you get on the bus and, you know, you would talk to your buddy, maybe Sunday, hey, let's trade some Atari games. And, you know, you would bring your games, he would kind of bring his, and you're like, all right, so uh, I'll trade you Galaxian or Defender. And you just swap games. Sometimes it was just, you know, for a period of time, sometimes for good. And uh, there was just such a social network and community around the, the system at that time. Um, you know, that that when the Nintendo came along, of course, we were all older, you know, junior high, high school. And, you know, but even in that era, I had never gotten rid of the older stuff. And I had, it's funny enough, as we were you know talking about doing this recording, I was looking at, you know, the shelves. And at, at one point, I actually knew like my core, like 12 games from like originally that I had with it. 
But over the years, and this kind of leads to something I want to mention when we talk about making games, is you sometimes lose track of things. So I don't know which uh, kaboom. There's like three kabooms here, you know, like twelve stuff. I don't know which one was the original one anymore. And at one point, I did. You know, I knew which ones were my original games. Mm -hmm. But um, so that that gets us up to the point that you were talking about that I think is a really cool period in Atari history that we should talk about. And that's the the fun is back campaign. And And that's that's the exact. That's actually more or less the era that I got introduced to the system. At that point, I would have been maybe five, six years old. I'd spent the uh, summer at my uncle's house, and he had an NES. And at that time, the NES was fairly new. Games were a little pricey for it. He had like maybe eight or nine games for it. But he had an Atari that I played all the time. And again, I want to bring up that you had brought up the library. He probably had 50 or 60 games for the thing. So I'm like a kid in the candy store trying out all these games, you know. (laughs) Oh yeah, I mean, it was, uh, and, and there there was always like you know garage sales and friends, and so it wasn't hard to round up a pretty meaningful collection of Atari stuff. And you know there was a period. I mean, you know it's not like Pac Man was created; everybody loved it. The developers retired for life, never had to work again, and Pac Man was a classic. At some point, these early the games that became the legendary icons of of gaming that we now, you know, do podcasts about and collect and all that, they were just old games, and we didn't really care that much because you know when you walked in the arcade, it's like yeah, yeah, I already played Pac Man. At some point, it was just Pac Man. It was just you know a three year old game that was kind of dingy, you know. Uh, that's how we saw it at the time as kids, you know. So when I walked in and I saw you know. Like Mike Tyson's Punch Out and uh, you know Moonwalker and Ninja Turtles, you know that kind of stuff in the late '80s and early '90s, and it's got you know bright colors and big monitor and stereo sound, and you know you're walking down the hall and you hear you know Moonwalker, and it's just this you know whole graphical you know something that you couldn't even do on a home computer unless you had like maybe an Amiga, maybe. Um, that was a big deal. And the other games kind of looked old by comparison and they kind of got shoeboxed or thrown out. But around, around the sort of the end of that era, the, the, you know, between the the five to six years, you kind of needed to cool off on a game before you said, Oh man, I hadn't played Pac-Man since, you know, the arcade days. That's when we started buying that stuff. Um, and that's fortunately Atari had, Pretty well timed the fun is back campaign so you know the nintendo was out there it was nice it was expensive and they felt that there was a market to clear out their warehouses full of old atari 2600 stuff so you know kb toys and a couple of the other uh you know uh toy stores they launched you know with atari they would host these uh you know, displays. So you would have like, you'd walk in, they'd have usually, you know, the 2600 Junior, which was the same or just in a different case. But you would walk in and they would have for 35 bucks, they would have the Atari 2600. And then all the games were, were between one and $5 each. So, you know, as a teenager, you could walk in there and just go, one of these, 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 and leave there with two dozen games and another Atari. That's because it looked new and different. 
you know. Yeah, like I cleaned up in that era just because, uh, again, uh, I can't remember the store we had gone to because, you know, age. But uh, they had a ton of Atari games for a buck, and I literally got a copy of every Atari game that was priced at a dollar that they had on the shelf. I probably walked out of that store with 20 Atari games. <laughs> oh, that's exactly what I did. And so those games also kind of ended up in boxes with, with other games. And then, um, you know, that for me, I guess, it, you know, if I had to ask myself when I became a retro gaming collector, that was when I became a retro gaming collector because that was the first time I would say that I articulated to myself and maybe sometime to others that, you know, the older systems were still cool. And, you know, I, I, I ended up, you know, going into the army, uh, 91 and I was in, you know, in the military, you do basic training. Then you go to AIT, which is your, uh, your, your school, like let's say your infantry, you go out and you learn more infantry tactics, different weapons, all that kind of stuff. Let's say you're, you know, a cook, you go off to army school and learn how to cook or whatever your job is. So I was uh, a Patriot missile systems tech and uh, I ended up uh, at Fort Gordon. So that's a very long school learning how to, uh, you know, uh, uh, operate fire, uh, operates a, a crew member in the Patriot missile system is a pretty technically complex task, you know? And um, so RAIT was pretty long. So, you know, I had, you know, uh, certainly the Nintendo that was still current. I mean, you could still, like, I think Super Mario Brothers 3 had just come out. You could still go buy Nintendos. You could buy, you know, all that. And um, we had, like, we were in these barracks, and we had a wall locker. And that was where you had to have, like, your uniforms and all that. And you could, anything you could fit in that wall locker, you could have in there within reason. So one of my trips, you know, home before I went back to base, because we were allowed, you know, not every weekend, but some weekends we could leave. So I went back, and I picked up my 19-inch XL100 RCA TV my Atari 2600, and the box of games. So, you know, as you go through the AIT, it kind of settles in, and, you know, things calm down a bit, and, you know, they're not watching every second, and you're, you're kind of there to train. So I would end up, like, you know, going to class. Like, you know, you have PT at, like, 5 a.m., then 6 a.m. breakfast, and then 7 a.m., you're marching to the school. So you're at the school, you know, the Army's, you know, schoolhouse. So you're in there, like, training on you know, radar or, you know, inertial guidance, whatever. And then you break for lunch. So initially they'd like literally march through the chow hall and like phase one. Later they gave you a little more autonomy and you just simply had to be back in an hour. Well, I would jet by the chow hall, kind of get something, you know, real quick to go. And then I'd go back to the barracks and I'd sit there and play like Space Invaders during lunchtime, you know, and like, you know, a buddy of mine, he had a TurboGrafx-16, I think, that had just come out. But, you know, it was fun, man. Like, you know, when we were in that barracks room, you know, like in the evenings or weekends, my roommate and I, like, we'd sit there and play Atari, man. And it was like, oh, dude, I remember this game. This was great. So that was kind of, I guess, for me, when I began collecting the old stuff, right about the time it was about, you know, 10 to 12 years old. And for me, in my case, um, 
the Atari, uh, don't get me wrong, I love the Nintendo. The NES is probably my favorite system of all time. But the Atari gave you gaming experiences that you could not find on the Nintendo that were still incredibly fun. Like, take something like Asteroids. You're not going to find anything like that on the NES. Take Breakout. You're, other than maybe Arkanoid, you're not going to find that on the NES. Cubert uh, is another great example to where there was an NES port, but the feel of the Atari version, in my opinion, was superior to the NES version just because of the fact that the Atari, you had the uh, stick with the directional controls, whereas the NES version, all you've got is the D-pad. Everything on Cubert's at an angle. Yeah, and if you look at, like, say, the NES, and you look at, say, their port of Donkey Kong, right? It was really, really good, but it was kind of poorly timed because I didn't really care. I mean, a lot of us didn't care because Donkey Kong to us at that point was just an old game. Right. And it was like, oh, you know, Donkey Kong. Yeah, I, I know. I, I played it on Coleco like five years ago. It's 87. I want to play, you know, uh, Smash TV. I don't want to play, you know, Donkey Kong. I already did that. It's just an old game. Which, you know, kind of, you know, brings me to a point about the downside of Atari and what I really think, you know, kind of hurt them from continuing as a legacy manufacturer. Uh, I think the thing that got them on the road of ruin, if you will, was that they simply, through poor planning, through not being ready, through misreading the market, you know, the famous, okay, we complete the 7800 and we put it in the warehouse for three years. The, um, of course, the famous Nintendo goes to Atari cap at hand and says, look, we don't think we can compete with you. So here's what we built. It's way ahead of what you got. Well, how about you guys sell it here? We all make money. Atari's like, hit that thing out of the office, you know. Um, that, the downside of Atari, because, I mean, nothing's perfect. <laughs> Excuse me. And I have good and bad memories. Of Atari, you know, when we say Atari, you know, 2600, 7200, you know, it, it, the, the name, the brand is ubiquitous, you know, as much with its own hardware as it was with all of gaming. But, you know, we would, uh, the 2600 came out and we had all played all those games, right? And here comes the Atari 5200. We were like, oh, new Atari. And, you know, the Coleco's out, the Intellivision's out, and there's all these great systems. We say to ourselves, you know, oh man, I want to check out this 5200. What does it do? And you look at it and, like, excuse me, you look at the, uh, like, here, I, I just pulled down my Atari 2600 box off the, the wall. And I'm looking like there's a kid in a striped shirt screaming, holding the joystick, having a good time. There's the box art, like the guy playing tennis, the motorcycle racing, and all that, but then there's the screenshots, you know, so you got like the e jump and, uh, you know, uh, battle zone and, uh, you know, all the just air sea battle, just all these great Atari titles. And, um, okay. So you get the 5,200 and you're like, all right, what were the cool 2,600 games? Right. And you're like, okay, we got pole position, battle zone, missile command, space invaders, Pac-Man, Pac-Man, junior frogger, Berserk, Asteroid, Centipede. Okay. And you pick up the 5200. Okay. What what games are out now? And it's like, okay, they've got uh, 
Frogger, Pac-Man Jr., Pac-Man, Space Invaders, Missile Command, Battle Zone, Pole Position, Berserk, Asteroid Centipede. It's like this is the same shit that was on a 2600. Yep. And we didn't really know or care that, you know, it was a better version, a better port. All we saw is the the new Atari plays the same games as the old Atari. Not only they that, but in many cases, finally. it played them worse, in my opinion, just because of the hardware of the system. They might look a little prettier, but that controller is one of the worst controllers I have ever used. Yeah, that's you're not wrong there. Um, but then, like, 7800 finally arrives to market. I never saw one in a store for sale. The only place I saw the 7800 was, you know, if you ever bought comic books in that era, they would always have the ads for various things. Like, that's where I saw the ads for the Vectrex was in comic books. Mm-hmm. But there was an ad for the 7800. And I remember seeing that. I, and I remember in the Sears Wish book seeing a 7800 for sale. I never saw one in the stores in person. And even like, okay, right now I can reach up here and I can, I can, I've got my Atari 7800 box. I'm looking at the back of it. Devious Centipede, Asteroid, Dallas, Miss Pac-Man, Pole Position. It's the same shit. And that was what, I'm looking at Nintendo, right? Mm-hmm. And I can go get this Nintendo, and I've got Gyromite, Double Dragon 2, Space Shuttle, uh, Super Mario 1 and 2, Operation Wolf, Heavy Barrel, Terminator, Blaster Master, Karate Champ, Dragon Warrior, Defender, RC Pro-Am, Zelda 1, Zelda 2. And I look at Atari, and I've got Miss Pac-Man, Joust, Devious, Centipede. It's the same shit for three generations of consoles. Yep, and, and yeah, the new stuff that they did have got drowned by all those old games, too. Like, again, you bring up, you know, Joust, Miss Pac-Pan, Centipede. For the few unique games that were on the 7800, a great example for me is Ninja Golf. Stupid premise, incredibly fun game. But you never heard about it because it's drowning under Galaga. It's drowning under Miss Pac-Man. It's drowning under Centipede. Right, and and even if, let's say, you know, Atari brings to market uh, a new system, but with arguably uh, five to eight-year-old games, out-of-date titles that people don't really care about. And as a kid, you don't have any loyalty to a brand. You don't feel you need to buy Atari or defend its legitimacy in the marketplace. You just want to play the games your friends are playing. So... You, you, and, you know, kids don't buy console, parents do, you know, until you're like a late teenager. So you would go into the store, say hypothetically with your parents, you know, or as a teenager with your precious lawn mowing and, you know, other money that, you you know, you were able to get together enough to buy a console. And you're going to go in and buy something. Are you going to buy the system that plays the same games you were playing back in, you know, pre-middle school? Or are you going to buy the thing that plays, you know, RC Pro-Am and Legend of Zelda 2? There's yep. not even a, there's no comparison. So today, I love to do the the tech, you know, look backs and say, okay, you know, could the 7800 have made games that were on par with the NES? And yeah, yeah, it really could. I mean, it was good hardware. What could have been? But man, you know. Not to, to rain on the parade too much, but 
It wasn't because they didn't. They released a slightly different console with the exact same games for the most part, or at least the same franchise. And you know what, man? It was Ninja Turtles or Pole Position 2. And a lot of that with your uh, third-party developers, too. It's like whenever you've got Nintendo and they've got everyone making their games, and you look at the list of what came out for the 7800, and under publisher, almost everything's Atari. Like Every once in a while, you might have some random one come out from Activision or Absolute Entertainment in some cases, but for the most part, everything that came out for the 7800 was made in-house at Atari, whereas Nintendo had all these third-party publishers. It's just a rain of games. Oh, you burned out in Zelda? Try Battletoads. Are you burned out in Battletoads? Try RC Pro-Am. There's so much selection on that system. The same selection that was on the 2600 back in the day that they lost. Yeah, and that it is um, unfortunate because... You know, often like you know, on our podcast, we give sometimes informally, sometimes we just, you know, formally, you know, subconsciously say, well, this is what it is. We give, you know, extra credit or extra leeway to legacy manufacturers. So, you know, like when when the PlayStation came along, I I was like, Sony, I don't want to buy a, a, a console from my VCR manufacturer. I want to buy you know, a, a, a console from Atari, you know, I wanted those legacy manufacturers. I didn't like, you know, ColecoVision and television, you know, all those guys that went away. I didn't want to see those guys go away. So one of the sort of the stunning disappointments of the, you know, modern era of Atari, which is the companies that own the copyright of Atari and, you know, pretend, I guess, to be Atari. Um, you know, those guys, like when they released the VCS and they said, oh, it's going to be this new Atari. And I said at the time, okay, guys, do you have a chance to do this right? You could, if you had a thought exercise and you said, all right, what if our challenge is this? What if the Atari business never went away? What if Atari had had Nintendo's arc, right? Mm-hmm. What if Atari had released, say, the 7800 on time and then had fully you know funded and properly executed say the nintendo 10,000 right and the nintendo 10,000 was the equivalent of the super nintendo two years prior to the super nintendo and it was like 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 a peer a you know like in military terms you have you know like a peer or near peer army you know meaning something that can field the same weapons systems and the same numbers and the same competency of training and budget that you do. So, you know, that's what you would call a near-peer force. So, the same thing, like, what if Atari had been a peer, near-peer to its competitors? And what if Atari never went away, right? So, the thought exercise there that I thought that Atari rights holders had been presented with, that I would have been, I would have been pushing on the show, I would have bought not one, not two, but three or four or five. I would have bought them for Christmas presents. I would have bought them, you know, and it's a whole other tangent. This is why piracy is not a threat. If you build a quality product, I don't care how many ROMs I have, I'm buying your stuff. But if 
if Atari had had, they had this golden opportunity. And if they approached it to like, all right, look, you got the PlayStation 4 or 5 out there. Look how it looks compared to PlayStation 1. You look at the Nintendo Switch, okay? Look how it looks compared to the NES. Let's do the same thing. What if Atari had never gone away? What if they had built out, you know, an ecosystem, an online experience, a store, a social environment? What if they had done all of those things and then said, here you go. It's the Atari reimagined as if it had never gone away. See, Man, I, I would have. I've had that thought exercise before, too. Uh, I kind of took it a different direction. My idea is what would have happened if uh, Atari would have gotten the rights for the Commodore 64 instead of them doing their own thing. Like whenever you had your uh, North American video game market crash, if Atari would have sidestepped and gotten the rights for that Commodore, oh, dear God. <laughs> oh, sure. And, 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 I mean, they had their own computer line. And, you know, that's the um, – you actually, you know – kind of stepped on a really important point there that uh, is often underappreciated. Um, Atari, you know, we always, well, often forget they didn't want to be in the video game business. <laughs> you know, the casual Atari, you know, fan or that's, you know, sort of familiar with them. You know, the hardcore, the guys that listen to this podcast going, yeah, of course we know that. Why are you even bringing it up? Well, not everybody does. You know, that's the thing you got to remember when you do these shows is, you know, not everybody knows every nuance, right? Right. So, otherwise, what's the point in presenting information? Um, but Atari did not want to stay in the video game business. They thought that that was an unserious, limited, potentially transient fad. And that goes back to what I was saying about, you know, we didn't know that these things were here for keeps. We thought video games may have been a fad. So... Atari didn't want to be in the video game business. That's actually why they delayed the 7800 release. They wanted to be in the computer business. They wanted to be considered a serious manufacturer, not of children's toys, but of computers and information systems. So they tried to compete in that space. They had, of course, you know, the, the ST was a, a near equivalent to the Amiga. It was very good, really good computer. And, uh, you know, as late as the early 90s, there were still Atari computer stores and Atari did have a market presence and they just got rolled into non-existence by MS-DOS as did everything, you know, Very almost well, even everything Macintosh. else. <laughs> yeah. I, it was, I feel like it was such a shame there was because that, there Atari, was that... uh, I, I feel like Atari was one of those companies. They had so many opportunities, especially with the 2600, but even post that they had so many opportunities to, make so much more money than what they ended up making to where they could have survived to this day if it weren't for the fact of a lot of the decisions they made. Of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, obviously. But well, yeah, and when I talk to like, you know, Joe DeCure, who is uh one of their principal hardware designers, if you ever get a chance to interview him, don't ask him too many questions because basically I mean, he's a wonderful guy. He he you know he helped create a lot of his hardware. But you know, he is every PhD you've ever met. You know, he is going to give you his thesis on rails and anything you ask him that's a sidebar or 
or extra, he's going to get right back on point and give you a thesis. You know, it's it's just as soon as I talked to Joe, I said, I'm willing to bet he's Dr. DeCuria because that's he's every <laughs> PhD I've ever dealt with. And, um, you know, which is one of the reasons I never pursued that degree, because I just don't like, you know, that kind of work. It doesn't appeal to me. Right. But brilliant man, the man necessary to make Atari hardware move forward. So he brought in like proper architecture. He emphasized, you know, good infrastructure, good architecture to allow them to grow. So when they they were obsessed with, you know, they wanted to make office technology. They and they felt that like that the kitty toy video game affiliation was going to hold back their success. So they tried to slow roll and downplay video games while upping their their computer presence. Well, they lost the gamble. And this is ultimately, you know, it, it it's true. It happened, okay? Atari screwed themselves right out of the business. They made themselves increasingly less relevant by having less relevant hardware, less relevant software titles. They slow-rolled, downplayed their video game branch to attempt to elevate their serious name and serious technology. And it worked. They talked themselves right out of video games, and they, and they didn't exist. Unfortunately, you know, as computers evolved, you know, again, you know, it's hindsight, you know. MS-DOS um, just became dominant in the business world. The IBM PC standard became dominant. And by, you know, there's a neat, uh, there, I, I can't give one guy credit for this, because there's a number of uh, people out there who have done the same show. And uh, there's a number of YouTube videos out there you can find. Just search, like, you know, OS use by year. And it'll start with, like, 1970. And you'll see, like, you know, various little things just kind of peak and drop off. And then you'll see, like, um, CPM, Control Program for Microprocessor, which was a disk operating system prior to, you know, MS-DOS. And you'll see it's, like, 98%. You'll see like MS DOS kind of like bumping around version like one, version two, 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 three. And then uh, you'll see like, you know, Amiga, Com- you know, Commodore OS. And all these bars are like, you know, each month, they pretty much do one update of the graph a month. And you see like all these OSs bubbling and boiling. And then all of a sudden you see MS DOS take off on a hard line to the right and everything else falls behind. Mac gets down in the corner. Commodore, CPM disappear, and all of a sudden, here comes Windows, and everything, and you see, like, Linux pop up, and Mac OS is down in the corner, but, um, yeah, Atari uh, just didn't make it. Their computer division was, a, in the end, a failure. They make, I mean, look, dude, this is the hardware, like, the, a generic PC of 1992, just a beige box running a 386 or 46, and you know, whatever, is never going to have the beauty, personality, and appeal of that Atari FT. Right. Not. Now, one but quick ultimately, question. <laughs> one quick question I got for you. Yes, going to the Atari computers. I know I'm veering a little bit off from the 2600, but um, Legend had it that a lot of people from Atari left whenever they made Amiga, and then Commodore kind of like came in under him and paid off the loan. And that's how Commodore ended up with Amiga. But if Amiga had stayed with Atari, do you think that we could actually see either one of them still around today in some fashion? Well, I mean, yeah, sure. Uh, and it's kind of funny with Amiga. 
because, you know, really the fans were hardcore, right? And the the hardware was capable. Uh, the problem is they just went static on certain technologies because they were effectively frozen out of the business market, right? IBM just simply dominated the business market, right? So like uh, if like David Pleasance, he was the the guy, like the Bill Gates of you know Bill as Bill Gates is to say Microsoft, Pleasance was to Commodore in Europe. So like we, I mean you know Commodore is an American brand. But I think of America, you know, Commodore as being American as, you know, mom, apple pie, and the M16. But, you know, to the to the Germans and to the Brits, they almost barely acknowledge that the Commodore is even American. Like, they're like, oh, that's our system, man. Did you guys have that over there in America at all? <laughs> you know, with the Amiga, they're not half wrong in that assumption. Right. Um, but, you know, like, I, I can sit there, like, we were just, you know, over there in Blackpool in the UK doing an expo. And I can sit there and talk to, you know, Butler and Pleasance and all. And, you know, to them, they they almost didn't see that incoming. They were kind of surprised. Um, but I remember, like, towards the end of the Amiga, we were like, hey, there's no CD-ROMs. Whereas you could go into the store and buy not only a CD-ROM drive, but that was the dominant method for software distribution. So everything started to look and feel dated. You know, the... PCs, they had CD-ROMs and, you know, 16 megabytes of memory. And then they had Windows 95 and CD-ROM support. And you were watching Weezer, you know, play music on your Windows 95 install. And here's the Amiga. Maybe next year, maybe next year we might have a CD drive. It's such a shame how they dropped the ball on that. Because if you go back just a few years prior, the Amiga was a monster compared to anything DOS or Windows 3.1 could put out. Like, it was a monster. And then just after a few years' time, they fell so far behind. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people lost that gamble. If you look at Apple, right? Apple thought, okay... Let's take the slow road, you know, kind of like the commies do, you know, let's take the slow road through the institutions, you know, we'll, we'll take over the institutions and then we'll set the policy, right? So, you know, rather than trying to create a revolution in the street, let's create one in, you know, wherever. And that was Apple's philosophy, which maybe kind of goes back to their kind of, you know, I don't know, hippie heritage with jobs and all, but they looked at it and, and they were very pragmatic and very focused in their execution. They said people will use what they grew up with. So they went into the school systems, and even though their computers were some of the most expensive, somehow they got those apples into almost every school system. So, you know, people grew up on Apple. Apple, to them, was a computer. And they thought, well, what are they going to buy when they go to college? What are they going to buy in the workplace? What are they going to suggest be purchased when they are in a decision maker role 10 years down the road out of college and, you know, in their careers. They've been indoctrinated um, into uh, the Mac already. (laughs) Oh, yeah, and you need no further host uh, proof of that than listen to my co-host, Mark, for more than two seconds. He's like, ah, yeah, Macintosh, the only computer ever existed. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he's a a true believer, right? Like, he has all Mac stuff, and and he has his reasons for liking it, and he's, he's not wrong. I... I stepped away from the whole smartphone thing when when they evolved from 
you know, I am buying a phone to send messages and make calls to, look, you don't really own this. We'll intrude on it anytime we want. You just pay us full price for the privilege of carrying around our product that we still are going to mess with. And uh, we're going to watch every fucking thing you do. And I'm like, bro, that's not the relationship we have. Yeah, I'm, I'm, out, I'm know? right there with so, you on that. Anything that has a locked bootloader just drives me up the wall whenever it comes to cell phones. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like like the example, and I realize this is like super tangent, but this is how we roll. Um, you know, if you bought, say, a Dell computer, right? And you formatted the hard drive and you, uh, you know, you load Linux, right? And... You know, you paid $2,000 for this Dell. And that night, you know, you go to bed and you, you hear something downstairs. So you, you head downstairs and you're expecting to see the cat knocking something over. And there's this dude in his underwear looking through your photos. And you're like, who the fuck are you? And he goes, oh, I'm Ted Dell. You bought a computer from me today. So I'm just looking through your photos and checking your emails. And it's like, bro, that's not, that's, we don't have that relationship. Right. You don't do that. And, I, you know, we would say, I never agreed to that. Well, the, you know, as much as I'm, believe me, you can tell I'm not on that side. We did agree to that. When we clicked yes on that EULA, we literally said that's the relationship we're going to have. So, you know, me, I'm going over, you know, Calyx. I have, that's my daily drivers, Calyx. I have Linux phones. I got like five different variants of them. Uh, some are successful, some not. Uh, you know, that's the direction I'm going in. Not their direction, you know. Yeah, I'm I'm a big but fan of stuff app, like the Pine Phone. Yeah, I mean that, that's that's one of the I have, I got a Pine Phone Pro, you know, right here within arm's reach. But that was one of the things that uh, you know I will say about Apple. As much as I like, I don't like them or Google, and I bounce from either paradigm. Obviously, I had a lot of iPhones. I had from like the iPhone one to the iPhone I think twelve was the last one I had. Mm-hmm. And I can say this. The, the way I would explain Apple products to other people is they don't do everything the others do. Like Apple iPhones do not do everything that Droid does. Apple phones and Apple products don't give you full access to the thing that you paid money for. And then they start having access to themselves. Okay, well, we're done. But the thing I will absolutely give Apple credit for is whatever it does do, it does the same time right almost every time and uh that has a huge effect so apple i mean they had some rough years man like they almost went out of business and uh you know they brought jobs back he brought back you know the next technology he brought uh brought them up to the modern age they released the imac which was an aesthetic hit that really was always apple strong i mean i got a mac se here that you know you start to look at that as thermal management, the quality of all the parts, fitment and all. That Apple was doing that from the beginning, man. The Macintosh is way superior to most of its peers in terms of build quality and function, you know. But in the end, all the extra window dressing, those expensive things, it's still just the same, you know, same chips that's in another computer. And is it really worth an extra thousand dollars to do the exact same thing? Well, that answer increasingly became no, and and they ran into some trouble, but they are better than most at producing a diehard loyal following. And I think today they are, you know, arguably 
one of the highest valued tech companies. I won't buy their shit, but I own their stock. That's for sure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, yeah, the what if. What if Atari had been as forward thinking, as savvy, and in some ways, as much as I would consider Apple to be a very arrogant company, they had a humility that in the early days that let them, you know, take a step back, lose some money just to build that that fidelity with their consumers. And yeah, Atari could have done all those things, but they didn't. Yeah, I'm, I've never been the biggest Apple fan, but it, it's bad these days because I see every other company doing it. Like a good example for me is internal storage. I'm here like, if I can buy a two terabyte NVMe right now for $70, why is it that for your computer or phone or whatever has the storage built in, if I go from 128 gigabyte to 256, you're upcharging me almost $150. It's insane. Because you paid it. <laughs> yeah, per, per, pretty well. It's because the mass market's willing to pay it. It's a horrible situation. Although, I, I will say, trying to steer it back a little bit back to the Atari, um, the Apple stuff is so rock solid, but it it's so walled down that you could never see on an Apple device what you saw on the Atari, where the developers can like just go bare metal on that thing and double or triple the performance. Oh, no question, man. No question. And, you know, that was one of the things that made that system so beloved is what they were able to squeeze out of it as an aid. And, you know, for some people, the Atari, you know, went away and then came back. For some of us, it never went away. But, you know, like if you look at, uh, you know, the whole classic gaming expo crowd, you know, the guys, those of us that for two decades ran out to Vegas every year, pretty much for Classic Gaming Expo, it began as World of Atari, when Atari was still in business, right? Mm -hmm. So that kind of crowd, you know, the World of Atari crowd, the, uh, you know, CGE crowd, uh, you know, the kind of guy that, you know, in, you know, 91 had his Atari in his wall locker in, in, in the Army. You know, for those of us, the, the Atari never went away. For a lot of people, it did. And then it came back. And uh, that's kind of the neat part of it is, you know, we generally kind of divide the Atari into two eras. There is the, 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 you know, production era, like basically while the thing was being manufactured and, you know, corporations, you know, were releasing the games and they were sold through retail. We consider that kind of be the official Atari era, right? Then it went off the market. The company stopped making games and the stores stopped selling them. So then, Every game made after that, we kind of refer to as the homebrew era, right? Now, the homebrew could be something that, you know, a guy coded in his, in his bedroom, or it could be a company that's trying to make new games for classic systems that very seriously wants to position itself as, a, you know, as a, a, a company that makes games and they don't want to be called homebrew. Okay, fine. It's a convenient label to delineate two points in its life cycle. So as the Atari started to see attention again, I would say this was around 2004, 2005, a, uh, you started to see cartridges like the very first multi-cart. So you could load different ROMs onto 
the same basic hardware. And this was kind of a uh, re-implementation of some existing ideas. Um, you know, like the Starfast Supercharger, where you could install different games, on, you know, copy them onto the cartridge, and then play the game. So, you know, the same... It was just a storage device, and the, the code could be different games. So you start to see that, and then the resurgence of interest in Atari stuff. And then we started going to expos, and I remember, man, it was around 2005, 2004, somewhere in there. I started to see, oh, hey, man, there's going to be a new multi-cart that you can hook up to the computer the USB, and you can copy over you know, 21 different games. Or then it was 130 games, and then 200 games, and then finally now it's, you know, like the Harmony, where you stick an SD card in there with every ROM, commercial, homebrew, anything ever. And it all fits on one SD, and it, almost all of them run flawlessly. It, it's amazing to but, think about because uh, the technology in the Harmony uh, is actually more powerful than what's in the 2600 itself just to manage the file system. It's really crazy. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah, big time, big time. Um, but, you know, it was that, that era. And, you know, like, you know, okay, you think about five years in your life, okay? So, you know, Five years ago wasn't all that long ago. You can remember what you're doing. Maybe you still have the same, you know, TV or computer you bought that year. You know, so here we are seeing these games and then people start releasing homebrews in larger numbers, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not a developer. I'm not a coder. I never have been. I never will be. And I madly respect those skills and that creativity and the ability to sort of turn your idea into an actual result, okay? And I've always said it like, you know, <laughs> the gaming expos and stuff, um, you know, I I'm never going to go win. Like, I could enter any gaming competition, and the only thing I'm going to do is lose. I'm not good at video games. Uh, I'm mediocre at best. I'm average at best. I'm just not. I'm not, um, uh, you know, I'm not killing it. Oh, it's same so here. I don't, I, have... I don't play because I'm good. I play because it's fun. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fun. And, and, you know, I really like the hardware and the tech, you know. But when we started getting into doing the podcast 2009, and we didn't ever sit down and say to ourselves, hey, we should make an Atari game. That would be cool. And, uh, you know... Even just because, you know, until you do something, sometimes you would never have thought of doing it or that you could. And I think back to like when we were the dopey kids, you know, sitting there with that, you know, that wood grain, you know, front end staring us in the face and, you know, the galaxian cartridge hanging out of the slot. The idea of one day, you know, holding in your hand and making your own Atari physical cartridge was just unimaginable. So, well, hence, you didn't imagine it. <laughs> so that was what it was like for us. You know, we had never articulated, hey, we could. And you, you look at all these, you know, small independent developers started making all these new 2600 games. And some of them at first was just like, okay, I can code. Let me whack together something that works. Like, you know, back when sort of memes first moved, you know, to the web and all. Um, a guy did one called Failboat, right? Mm -hmm. And Failboat was uh, 2014 by Peter G. I've got it right here in my hands. And, you know, that was, uh, 
that was a good example of like, okay, you know, I can make a homebrew. And then you started having people making recreations of older games and uh, ports of games that were never ported, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, so that era was just like exploding with all these new games. And I bought so many of them, man. Um, you know, going to CGE every year, it would just be a race through all the exhibitor stalls to see what the new games were and get a copy of each. Cause some of them, there weren't that many copies made, you know, it was, Oh yeah, I'm going to make 30 copies to sell. Cause it was just, you know, one guy that well made 30 copies to sell and that's all he had, you know? Yep, so, I uh, um, never had the opportunity to go to uh, the CGE or the EGC conventions, but um, I did get a few of the uh, homebrew cartridges. Uh, I, I'm a huge Halo guy, so whenever Halo 2600 came out, I'm here like, I've got to get that on the cartridge. Um, of course, whenever CGE oh, Adventures came out. About that. <laughs> uh, when CGE Adventures came oh, out, yeah. I had to buy a copy of that one. So funny enough, um, that was one of the ones that really kind of got the gears grinding it. Man, this is maybe achievable. So uh, when uh, uh, L2600 came out, you know, we were talking with Ed about it. And he was pretty, you know, pretty straightforward. He was like, yeah, so basically, you know, I kind of retired early from Atari. I got a lot of money and I was sitting around thinking what I could do. And I was bored one day, and I said, hey, I'm going to make Halo on a 2600. So, you know, being a former, you know, guru at, 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 you know, Microsoft, he had the, you know, he could text the guy and go, hey, can you ask legal if I can make Halo without being bothered? And Microsoft's like, oh, yeah, it's cool, bro. And then he does, you know. But, uh, you know, the idea that he nailed, he devolved that game perfectly. He, You look at that image, and you know that's Master Chief. I'm not even a big Halo player, and I look at an instant recognition, and that that right there is hugely important, instant recognition. So, you know, in this era of all these possibilities and all these new games coming about, we were, uh, you know, if you want to hear the whole story, we got it on the podcast, we told it a million times, but the short, short version of it, if there is one, is uh, we had just come back from, uh, well, we were doing a CGE. And I've got a game from that. It's a very special game. It's called Road Duel. And uh, it was uh, it was done by a fellow named Stephen Smith. And, you know, he's gone to back here. He said, to my friend Scott, drive on Stephen. Now, Stephen was a very interesting guy. Uh, I don't know his exact medical history because, you know, we never discussed it. But he, he, he didn't live long. He passed away, you know, years ago. Uh, he had all sorts of, you know, uh, birth defect issues, like, you know, whether it was, you know, progressive. It was obviously progressive, you know, defects, whatever he had. And uh, the guy, I mean, like, his eyes were rolled back. So all, like, you could really see is, like, the whites of his eyes and the little people looking down. And he had this huge crutch he had to use before he was just confined to a wheelchair. And... Uh, I mean, you could not be in a room with this dude and not see that he was there. I mean, you know, it was, you know, he was a very, he stood out because of all of his issues. And, uh, you know, he would always be there at the expo. And for him, that was his trip of the year. That was like, because he had to have some assisted care stuff. And, you know, so that was his biggie. 
And the guy, like, he's legally blind. He had glasses like like bubbles from Trailer Park Boys. I mean, this dude, you know, but with all that, he loved video games, and he just wanted to create his own game. So he set about learning code. And he was a exceptionally brilliant person. Um, you know, like like you know, like, like Stephen Hawking. Like, if you think of Stephen Hawking, if you're in a room with Stephen Hawking, you would know he was there because he's that guy that can't speak who's in a wheelchair. And you would you look at his body of work and you realize, all right, this man's a genius, you know, and and, and it's the same guy, you know. So uh, he just uh, he had done this incredible game, and you know could barely see the results of his work. And he was sitting there, man. He was sitting over at uh, Good Deal Games with Michael Thomas and sort of sharing his booth, and he's selling the copies of his game. And I had never seen somebody just that has, was so rightfully proud of their accomplishment. And he couldn't wait to find a copy, you know. And I, you know, and he told me at the time, you know, we were sitting there and uh, I ran into him in the uh, uh, the food court there in the Riviera. And, you know, he, he says to me, you know, uh, hey, uh, you know, I can't believe I'm here. And that like, at one point, you know, I'm I'm sitting there on the carpet with a 2600 joystick in my hand, and here I am today as a publisher selling Atari games that I made. And I was like, dude, I I don't know if I'll ever have that feeling, man. Good on you. And uh, so later, you know, we're at Class Gaming Expo, and uh, this dude who uh, I don't know, you know, two, he's got a whole history. He was basically a known jerk, like. He would go around and he got caught like, you know, multiple vendors said this guy stole stuff from us, you know, and multiple exhibitors said, yeah, he just like picked up his disk drive and dropped it and then like sprinted away. But, you know, nobody would ever do anything about it. So one day we're sitting there, you know, the expo's done and they're tearing, breaking down all the tables and chairs. And Keith Robinson, who had inherited by buying the uh, Intellivision world was like Mr. Intellivision, right? Another wonderful guy that passed away way too soon, man. But Absolutely. Uh, he, uh, he and I, we were sitting there talking, it was me and uh, Mike and him and, and all, and uh, he kind of looks over, we hear this rustling, whatever, but we continue talking, and we get done, and what had happened is this known thief had come up, and, and we would burn, like, say, you know, it's antiquated now, but at the time it made sense. We would burn like, you know, like a thousand CDs. That would be like, because if you give somebody a business card or a sticker, they get home, and even if they meant to, they probably throw it in a the drawer, they probably throw it away, and they don't ever follow up. So we said, well, let's give people a CD that has a bunch of our shows on it. And as they're driving back home from CGE, or, you know, people at that time still had discmans and shit. Mm-hmm. So you would say, hey, throw this in your thing and give us a listen. So it was kind of like was a, a business card idea. that you actually. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it was like something we tried, and uh, you know, it, it worked in the in in that context of the era. So you know, we are uh, sitting there, and this guy who is deaf, and dude, my own wife, it she wearing wears hearing aids. She lost her hearing. Okay, you know, we all know somebody's deaf. It doesn't mean he isn't like it doesn't make him immune from criticism or that he isn't, you know, what he is. Right. Right. So these things can be true. So he stole a thousand audio CDs, like literally picked them up and ran the fuck out the door as if it was, 
you know, a brand new video game system sitting there. And we're like, this idiot, he literally stole a thousand audio CDs that he can't hear. And, and for the it people listening, the for the people listening right now, I have to say if this story became legend on the old uh, retro gaming roundup forum, which eventually moved over to Discord. But this story is absolutely legendary about this guy who's deaf, just swiping a bunch of CDs, not not one, which are free anyway, so he could have just grabbed one. But he takes the it's entire one spindle. Yeah. <laughs> There's no reason to steal them. You're not going to be able to sell the things. It was just unreal. Yeah, it, it, defied, it defied any and all logic, right? So initially, we went to lay a beating on the guy, you know? So we were looking, we were walking up and down the hallways there because, you know, it was Sunday evening. And we're hoping to run into this guy. And we were going to go out back and, you know, play basketball with him. And <laughs> we never found him. Okay, we never found him. And so, you know, we end up like, ah, all right, piss on this. Let's go back upstairs. So, you know, we go upstairs and, you know, we go back to the suite and like, you know, we turn on the, the hot tub water and, you know, empty the lotion balls and stick in our feet. And, you know, that was back in our drinking days. So, you know, we got like this giant bottle of whiskey that we're just passing around and just getting hammered and, you know, soaking our aching feet and, you know, relaxing you know expos are exhausting mm -hmm. and uh one of us said man that'd make a cool premise for a video game like you know you know you 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 play us trying to chase down this cd thief and all that and somebody else said uh hey wouldn't it be kind of cool if we did it like the other way like where we're the or like we're like the ghost monsters and because we didn't know what the game was going to be, you know, we, we didn't know if we were going to copy pack, man. We, we didn't know. We didn't even have a plan to do a game. And somebody just said, you know, let's invert it. So we're like, you know, the automated monsters. And then you're the CD thief, right? And you've got to get our CDs and escape. And then I remember saying, oh, yeah, and it's got to be like, you have to do the levels to reflect CGE. So we need like, you know, the arcade, the museum, the casino. Uh, the Vegas Strip, you know, we need all these features in there. And, uh, you know, so we said, okay, let's do that. Let's, you know, well, let's make that a thing. And we started getting back. We started talking to people. And uh, uh, fellow, I've got his game right here. Um, at the time, um, Todd Holcomb had just done Evil Magician Returns. And I, I've got it right here. It says, oh, yeah. Um, He's got a note in it to me here. <laughs> um, so he had done Evil Magician Returns. And, you know, he gave us a lot of great ideas. You know, he talked to us about how he did it. Uh, you know, he told us how he did, like, the map and the manual and then the case. Uh, he used a CD case. So, you know, when DVDs and CDs were, you know, like, say, 10, 15 years ago, were more prevalent, you would have, like, a company might want to do a series of training DVDs like, you know, when you start your company, if they said, oh, okay, look, we got, you know, four training videos that used to be on VHS, but now they're on DVD. So they would put like those five or six DVDs inside this box. And uh, the thing that Todd noticed is, well, an Atari cartridge fits perfectly in the circle. And then you close it and there's actually a clip in there for the manual and everything else. So we said to Todd, well, hey, man, since you actually like know how to code, are you interested in working with us? 
And he said, yeah, yeah, that'd be kind of really cool, man, to be part of the podcast making a game. I said, yeah, let's do it. So, you know, we started to add. He said, well, I know this guy that can do this. So the team started expanding. And I don't want to leave anybody out, but I will. I'll I'll screw it up. But I said, okay, I'm just not a coder, man. What can I do? And I said, okay, well, I'll do, you know, physical assembly, you know, getting the boards with the code on them. You know, the chip on the board, the board, the code on the chip, get that into the case, get the label on, get it in the box, print the manuals. I'll do the production. I could easily do that, right? And SoCal was like, okay, well, I'll write the manual and I'll do the art and, and all that. And UK Mike was like, okay, well, then I'll do the box and the, uh, um, you know, a couple other things. And then we started, as we started actually doing this thing, started, you know, like a chat and we all started pitching in our ideas and how we were going to do it. Um, you know, I said, well, you know what? I, I, I really have been reading up on this level design and I'll, I'll send you this picture when we get done here, um, of how you did the, uh, the layouts of like a level in an Atari game and you actually use graph paper. So I bought, you know, you know, the engineering graph paper that's quarter inch by quarter inch squares mm-hmm. and each one represents a pixel on the Atari screen. So, you know, I, I, I apologize. I forget the exact number, but I'm, I'm holding here in my hands the, uh, the map. So what we did is we had to draw out the hallway and we thought, okay, so what, we, what are we going to be doing? Well, he's going to be running with us chasing him. How, what do you run through and have someone chase you? Well, a maze, right? So how do we make a maze? So we thought about like the layout of the Expo 4. So we actually went and got maps uh, and fo- well, photos uh, to make a map of the um of the expo so like there were pictures that people had taken and posted of like looking down at the floor with all the vendors and i kind of looked at all the tables and i said well you know guys i'll I'll do level design because i i think i can do this so what you do is you you take the graph paper that has exact number of pixels horizontally vertically and you draw out uh so let's say we know the character is going to be eight pixels right Mm -hmm. if we make the hallway eight pixels Getting into that hallway is going to be very difficult. If we make it 20 pixels, you run at that hallway from any angle and you're headed down that hallway. So scaling the character right to the scenery is actually a way of controlling aim pace, difficulty, and other things. So I started taking like, you know, you go to any like Comic-Con, any local expo, anything you've ever been to. There's a layout of like tables and vendors and stuff. We thought, okay, well, we'll just put a pole here, like there's a, a support column. We'll put a barrier here. And then so you run in between the vendors thing out behind where the vendors are and then pop. And, and so we made a maze. So now we had a maze. We had, you know, uh, the three of us, you know, myself and Mike James and Stoke out the time. Uh, we were the characters. So, you know, we were running around trying to take your objects, trying to get our CDs back. And you were the deaf CD thief who you were trying to get. First of all, you had to reach the D, the CDs. You had to steal them. And then you had to get past in television, the great, which was our friend, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, we asked, you know, uh, we, we said, Hey man, Keith, will you, will you be in our game? And he goes, yeah, sure. Uh, oh, and you get to be the boss monster kind. He goes, oh, yeah, I love that. A- against Atari. I really love that, you know. 
So we put Keith Robinson is in television the great, you know, and uh, you know we we just kept going and going, and then uh, uh, Pac Man Red Revenge, a couple of those guys on the uh, Atari forum had various you know sort of modules that they've been working on, like the ability to scroll graphics in a really novel way. So they came in and helped us out, and they did like you know the title screen where you see the the flashing Vegas sign actually like flashes. Um, I mean that that whole sign was more content than maybe what was in some games back mm-hmm. in the day. Um, you know, and as I recall, we took something like uh, 32 megabytes because at one point I you know I just did a right click properties you know, stupid, simple shotgun count and said there's 31 megabytes of, you know, asset, be it code, be it, you know, drawings, scenery. There's 31 megabytes in this thing. And we're going to squeeze this down to like 31 kilobytes. Holy crap. And we did, you know, but just that whole dev process, man. And, and it, we had targeted about a year and, we were right. I mean, it came out to be a year. <laughs> so one year later, right as CGE was coming around again, we had, you know, the manual done. And the manual, it, 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 it looks so slick, you know. The game was working, uh, you know, and we were ready to go. So, you know, we, we one thing we did is we asked a lot of the other game makers, hey, what is, how many do we make? Because we had no idea. We just went around at the expo and just sat down in their booth with them and said, Hey, bro, um, we're doing a game. How many do we make? How do you know? And we got all sorts of answers. Excuse me. All kinds of answers. Anything from, uh, well, you know, 25, 30 we made, you know, 200 is a runaway hit. And uh, I, I honestly, and you know, one of the things I always wondered, um, you know, just to tell on us, to tell myself, is how any of this stuff gets lost to history. Like, how do you not know how many, you know, of like how many computer spaces there were? Does Ted Dabney legitimately not remember how many they made there? Because he was there every day. Mm-hmm. Well, I now understand that process. <laughs> I really do. Because I ordered all the, you know, the cartridge shells from Atari Age. You know, they came, used them. I didn't I didn't save those receipts for posterity to my email. Once I got the cartridges, it was like, you know, like like you don't have a record of every you order from anybody just for posterity, you know. So I don't remember like I know it was like ride I three hundreds, like, you know, we were told two hundreds are runaway hit and we sold almost four hundred. Well you so, also had a bunch of extra okay, stuff cool. in there too. It wasn't just a manual game and case. Oh, no, we, we see, this is the cool part of having like this whole team and this, uh, you know, uh, team effort of everybody bringing cool ideas is we started talking about this and we said, well, all right, look, hold on. We've made, we've gone through all the effort. We've made all this trouble to make, (laughs) sorry, to make our own Atari 2600 game. Right. And we, okay. It's in the box. That's going to be cool. But. And, you know, as much of a thieving, uh, family-screwing, money-stealing, industry-defrauding scumbag as Mike Kennedy became, um, 
at the time he wasn't that guy yet. And I, you know, I have to, it would be dishonest to, to not include his contributions. He, at that time was one of the guys that had a lot of the cool ideas of like, Hey, you know, like, but think about it, like, like games back in the day, they had all these other things. Like they had a, a theme song that was on the radio. They had, a um, you know, a breakfast cereal, a, a, you know, a pasta. Right. And, you know, yeah, I had more than a few bowls of Pac-Man pasta in my day. So we got to talking about that. We're like, all right, let's do it. So one of our dear friends, Adrian Killens, 80, also known as Shady 80, and he has a British a band called the British IBM, and they do mainly video game and computer theme kind of songs. So Shady 80 and his band of shysters, they said, hey, we'd love to do a song. And we said, that's great. Sounds good. Knock yourself out. And he said, well, what do you want it to be? I remember I said to him, dude, look, I... I can't, I'm not a musician, so I wouldn't presume to tell you, like, hey, make this for me as I imagine it. Um, and, you know, he's a hell of a musician, so I didn't want to insult, you know, him by asking him to do something I couldn't do. They said, no, like, what are you thinking? I said, well, what I'm thinking is all the classic games like Pac-Man Fever basically describe the gameplay. And uh, then you had, like, say... Uh, you know, if you look at the old Scooby-Doo episodes, right, there was always that chase song, chase, you know, scene where they had some sort of bubblegum pop, funky song. You know, like, I, literally, I saw one the other day, like, Scooby-Doo's running around, and it's the, the song, I'm in love with an ostrich, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just like this, you know, and I said, so, 80, if, if I had to tell you, like, what I'm imagining in, in my mind's eye, it's a Scooby-Doo chase song that describes the gameplay. And he goes, okay. So a couple weeks later, he comes back and says, see what you think of this. He did us a theme song that sounds like a Scooby-Doo chase song. I mean, it could not be better, right? Um, and then we did, uh, you know, uh, Mark Kaminsky, one of our show associates, you know, he hugely contributed some art assets, some drawings. And um, we made, like, literally, we went and got, like, you know, Kraft macaroni and cheese, but we had, like, this wrapper that went around it that was, like, you know, CGE Adventures. So we had the theme song, the breakfast cereal, the pasta, uh, you know, just everything. And it was so cool to uh, to do all the accoutrements that a game had back in the day. You know, the feelies. Like, I remember I bought an uh, edition of Ultima, and it had, like, a silk map in it and a coin. And we said, well, let's put in some dice because it's Vegas. Let's put in like one of the, the physical items in the game. Uh, one of the items you have to have is an access badge. So we said, well, let's make a physical access badge that, you know, you can have. So we did all those things, you know. And to so, me, that part was genius, too, because it gets you in the mindset for the game. Whenever you open that box and you've got like the dice representing your casino, you've got the VIP badge representing the convention. Like it gets you in that mindset to play this. <laughs> Well, yeah, and that was, um, you know, you look back at early video games, the the graphics were sort of a placeholder for your imagination. Like, you know, look, and that's not a bad thing. Like, look at the original Dungeons & Dragons, right? All the pencils, the papers, the tables, the numbers. Action took place in your imagination. You know, maybe at the top end of it, you had a figurine that represented, you know, a barbarian with an axe. For the most but part, it was, it was all, all theater of, of the mind. Yep. Exactly, theater of the mind. 
And that's the kind of thing that it was that. It was exactly that. So we, we said to ourselves, you know, all right, so in the era of Atari, you know, and the whole golden era of video games, the graphic was the stand-in for your imagination, right? Well, with all the modern, you know, drawing tools and everything else, we could do it a little more actual graphics. But still, you know, when you bought that that thing, like that coin, that was the physical representation, you know, of what was being represented on the screen. So it all kind of fed on itself. So that's how we ended up like, the, the reason we ended up with a pasta and a breakfast cereal and a song and all that was because we just said, dude, if we're going to make like, I mean, how many times in your life are you going to do this? If we're going to do a 2600 game, let's like do the whole damn thing with no apologies and no half-assing it. And we did. And, and you know, dude, there's, trust me, there's nothing special about us. Like the development team, you know, half of us had never coded a thing in our lives. Um, but we each had some sort of talent, you know. and if you ever said to yourself, hey, it would be, you know, cool if we could make our own game, but I just don't know that much about it. Well, you know, there's probably a group of people that you can circle up together that do want to bring something like that into fruition. So, um, you know, the, the takeaway, you know, I would give to any of your listeners is if you want to, you know, wake up one day and say, you know, it would be cool. I do want to make my own 2600 game. I want to do that do it the only difference between us and you is we just did it that that like trust me you probably have more talent than us we just said well we're gonna do it now and i will say call this on much, all of though, our friends you know i gotta say this much though. you guys knocked it out of the ballpark like that game is a blast like, to to me personally on the outside looking in i had nothing to do with the development of it or anything uh it reminds me so much of an upgraded version of Adventure. It's like Adventure if you cranked it up to 11. That game is such a blast to play. Well, that was, um, you know, we did not set out. Well, we is a funny thing because everybody had a different idea of what it was going to be, right? Which probably made it what it was. Um, but at no point did I or anybody else ever say, hey, we're going to do, you know, Adventure. But, you know, our our take of it right that was never a discussion but i am not going to sit here and tell you or anybody else oh there, there's no influence of adventure in there of course there's an influence of pac-man there's influence of all kinds of games in there that you know because where the hell do you think we got our ideas from you know so yeah th there is and i think that uh it was socal mike that had a whole lot of uh um uh, ideas of like like he he referenced you know games like adventure games like pac-man um and said hey well that play mechanic of like you know the guy that rearranges things or moves an asset let's let's that's a great play mechanic that play mechanic may have first been used in adventure it's been used in i don't know like thousands of games ever since you know it's just you know a, a, an npc stealing some of your stash is just video games 101 so, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, it's, we use it's, definitely. I, I feel like that it's like, uh, again, I compare it to adventure a bit, but to me, uh, CG adventures is 
more or less a role-playing game, again, on the 2600. And in my opinion, it's one of the best out there. And I'm not talking just homebrew. I'm talking one of the best for the 2600. I had a blast with it. Oh, yeah, and, and it, it, I appreciate that. And, and you know, the, the false humility thing, you know, is, is annoying. It is a great game, and it does have a tremendous... Uh, your status to some of the best games out there. No, I am not for a minute saying, well, you know, we're clearly just as smart as Howard Scott Warshaw in game design. You know, because the guy actually worked for Atari and made a shit ton of the games that, you know, we love and cherish. But, um, you know, we're not stupid people. And, yeah, we created a cool game. And, I, I, and you know, when I say that, you know, you, you know, speaking to the listener out there, are no different than us, possibly, probably better positioned um, you're probably just as smart as Howard Scott Warshaw, you know, you, you know, like you talk to guys like Bob Polaro who did, you know, uh, defender at all yet. You, you talk to these guys that created these games and they're, they're a dude just like you. They work in the tech industry, just like you. They, you know, they, they have to pay a mortgage. They're, they're ordinary people. And, you know, every one of them would tell you, man, go make your game too. You know, you can do it. I did it. You can do it. There's nothing magic about me. And yeah, so I would say to, you know, like any listener out there that uh, you can probably make a really good game. Now, the total cheat here that I don't want, you know, for a second to, you know, let this audio get out there without giving this caveat is they did not have the tool chain that we have. But Tari Basic did not exist. You did not have a you know eight core i7 you know with I, we've you know, got GIMP. 40 years of development and research into the system that they didn't have back then yeah absolutely so if you're going to code together you know you're first you're going to whack together the graphics you know some of it is still done the old way like you actually draw out with you know pencil on a graph thing your scenery, you calculate the width with the pixels. And somebody says, Hey man, you know, it's really hard to get away from podcasters when you go down some of these corners because it's too tight. And you don't know until you try. So now you gotta go through and redraw this whole thing and make it one pixel wider, two pixel wider, three pixels wider, and then see what feels good. And one of the there's two takeaways I really learned from this process. One was how easy it how easy it is to make a game that's too easy or too hard and how hard it is to make a game that's rightly calibrated for a first time player and then for the guy that plays it his third fourth fifth time without him saying this game sucked it's too hard i couldn't even figure it out or it's so easy i figured it out in the first play and i got nothing out of it you know you want a game you know minutes to learn a lifetime to master all that and it's so hard to do that because once, you know, think about like, say, Mario Brothers, right? The first Super Mario, Super Mario Brothers. You play that game the first time. It was a very different experience than, you know, after the, the third year you owned it. But when you spent a year playing a game and you the, the surprises aren't as surprising, you kind of know what to do first. You have memorized the maze at that point. Mm-hmm. And you just, because you drew it, you know. It's very easy to lose all touch. And this is probably what makes good video game producers, directors, designers, 
uh, industry capable versus one hit wonders like us is, you know, we had to continuously go to people and say, here, play this and tell me what you think. Cause we had lost all touch with how difficult it was or wasn't, you know? Um, and that's a very real part of making your own game. And that's something again, that some I people they, struggled with back then, too. Because, again, like uh, going back to Mario absolutely Brothers. Absolutely they did. Going back to Mario real quick. 1-1. One, one, it was designed to teach you how to play that game. Everything was placed in that level so precisely to kind of guide you in learning how to play that game. That first Yumba there. Uh, it's telling you, hey, you got to jump over me or I'm going to kill you. You, you know, you start jumping, and immediately you start jumping. Well, if I can jump over a Goomba, what else can I do? That, you got this big blinky thing. At, yeah, I'm going to jump and hit it. Oh, something popped out. You grab it. Oh, I grew. Everything around that game was built around teaching you. And some Atari games did a good job of that, and some games did horrible. I talked about E.T. earlier. I think it's a good game, but I think it did a horrible job at teaching the player what to do. Oh, it, one of the worst. One of the worst. Um, like in a pinball world, some pinball is, unless you know how to play pinball, very inaccessible to the player. Like they have, n so they just end up playing this 18 inch game of trying to keep the ball out of the hole. They have no idea what's going on. Other games like Family Guy and Honest to God, Shrek, because it's the same game with a different skin, do masterful jobs of teaching you how to play pinball. Like, I would say, like, any pinball wannabe fan or, like, somebody that doesn't, if you tell me, like, like, you know, they say, like, oh, we, you know, uh, we let people who hate cats, you know, adopt a cat for a weekend and see if they still hate cats, you know. If you think pinball isn't your thing or if you're not sure or whatever, play Family Guy. Let it teach you how to play pinball. And then now, you know, play other games. And now that you've got a tutorial on how you actually play pinball. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing what happens when people take that chance and that opportunity. Another um, pinball game but, I got to bring know, up that does the same thing, in my opinion, is uh, probably Pinbot, which I think it does an awesome job of teaching yeah, yeah. someone who's new to pinball, okay, well, you're not just keeping the ball until it sinks. There's goals on this table that you need to achieve. And that's what is sadly not well communicated in a lot of games. Um I, again, I just I think that was fantastic of how Family Guy did that. So that was a feature that we had kind of in mind of, okay, how are we going to do that? But, you know, one of the things that for me was a huge uh, lesson in all this, and, you know, it, you know, it's not fun if you don't tell on yourself and all, is like I was telling you how, like, things become lost to history. Like, how on earth did, uh, you know, Abney and Bushnell – or there at Nutting Associates, they design computer space, and they don't remember how many they made or what the name of the company was, like that that made the the shell, like you know, the cabinet. So you know, Ted and I were talking one day, and uh, you know, he was, I was like, uh, dude, so, like for real, you don't remember where you got the the shell made? He goes, no, nah, there's a, because you know, they're all of the vendors that did wood. But at the time, you know, fiberglass was like the carbon fiber of the 60s, you know. And it was like the Corvette had been fiberglass, and fiberglass was amazing. So we wanted to do something space-age, something, you know, because there was no guarantee that, you know, video games were going to look like video games because it had never been done. One of the, you know, ideas at the time that had been sketched up uh, by other, you know, kind of like the Wright brothers, right? Mm -hmm. They were the first to do powered flight. 
but people across the globe were cracking away at that nut. And that was just that technology that time had arrived for it. So there were a lot of people cracking away at video games at that time. And one of the things that, you know, when they did it, uh, they said, let's kind of, you know, put it in a pinball cabinet. Like, so have the monitor facing up at you, have a sign that shows what the game is, where the, the scoreboard would be. That could have been the first couple of video games or maybe all of them, you know, because pinball was the physical format. Well, I was talking, like I was talking to Ted, I said, so you guys, like, you don't remember the name of the company, the fiberglass, but he goes, no, no, it's like, you know, we're out driving around, we're talking about, you know, making uh, the cabinet, and we said, okay, well, how do you get, what about fiberglass? That's high tech. It's like, well, how do you get that done? It's like, well, you know, I bought a fiberglass hot tub, maybe, you know, like the hot tub guys, they could, uh, I bet they could, they could, uh, t- they, they, they could, they could probably make something like that. So, you know, he was telling me, yeah, you, you drive down this road, you go, uh, you know, out past uh, this roller rink, and there's a convenience store, and across was this like industrial lot, and there were like these racks that held all this tubing and stuff along the train tracks. So we rolled up in there. I was on my motorcycle, and we went in and talked to this guy. And he showed us the spray guns, the chop guns, the molding process, and gave us kind of a ballpark price quote of what it would take to do it. And, you know, we talked about it. And, and I'm like, I, I can totally see, after talking to him and him describing it, how he could remember, because we all have things like that in our life. There's a place you used to live, a place you used to, you know, something in your life that you could describe all kinds of things, but you can't remember what the hell the name of the place was. Right. You know, um, I totally get how that happens. So let me tell you about the things that we lost and forgot. And, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like we became, we literally learned every lesson, good and bad. We, 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 we became like a parody of what we had always questioned or criticized. It was a, it was a humbling lesson to go, Oh yeah, that's how it happens. Um, so, you know, you look at people like, you know, uh, Kurt Vendell, he used to go to Atari's buildings when they were still in business and when they would like fill the dumpsters, he would go fill his car. And he was the guy that archived and saved all that stuff. So what did we lose and how did we lose it? Well, let's see. Uh, at some point in our chat, every time we do a revision of the game, which sometimes was several times a week, sometimes once a week, I would say they're probably no less than 40, easy 40 individual builds some of them was just a gray scenery with a character moving some of it was a maze with no character some of it had no sound some of it had no intro and it was all the iterative you know releases leading up to the final version right they're all gone because atari age didn't archive it because we were doing this in like a a chat just like like you and i are chatting in discord we were doing this stuff in like a chat group and then um i was the only one that thought about archiving it because just nobody thought about it. So I thought I'm going to save all this. Right. So I just did right click, save as for each generation. And I had this folder and there's all this other stuff in there, all the original artwork. And, you know, none of us thought like, well, I mean, if we ever wanted anything, we can just go to the thread and grab it. All that stuff was gone, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I had to, I normally have pretty good discipline. This is actually the thing that kicked me in the ass on, you know, real backups is nowadays I have like, you know, 
proper NASAs with, you know, terabytes and terabytes of, of storage. One backs up to the other one remotely, and I'm not losing a damn thing. But I didn't necessarily do that at the time. I had, you know, like drives, and I do a backup. But this was like sitting on this one drive. And one day, like, I couldn't read anything off the drive. And, you know, it had been like, you know, people used to come to work and say, oh, I'm late because I had car trouble. Nobody questioned it. Dave, when was the last time somebody showed up late because of car trouble? It doesn't happen, you know? Uh, so things like, you know, when was the last time you honestly really had a hard drive crash? Probably been a while. Right. So, you know, you, 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 you let your guard down. So what happened is the master uh, uh, file table or both, there's like a primary and a secondary, both got corrupted. So the data was just gone. Like, uh, you know, you could have like mailed it off to like a specialist who for an exorbitant fee could have recovered some of that data maybe. And I, you know, we were just like, ah, shit, it's gone. So that's how we lost like everything <laughs> except for like the completed version. And, uh, you know, like I literally have one prototype. So when I made uh, the first physical cartridge, because we were, whenever we like do the ROM, we would copy it to uh, a, a Harmony cart and then play it on the Harmony cart. That was our main development tool. Mm-hmm. Well, I, um, <laughs> uh, I, I I made the first physical card and, you know, I printed like, you know, just using like a color laser. I printed the first iteration of the, the box cover and I burned that first, you know, that almost final version of the ROM and printed like, you know, it's, again, it's on a color laser, not the bulk printing that we did for the product. And I, I didn't think to like mark this thing. Like I didn't put it in a, freaking vacuum steel bag that said prototype number one the way i can tell them apart is the uh color of the blue on the spine is much darker on the laser printed one versus the one that we ordered from the printer that was done professionally so i know that that's the prototype and if i open it up i can tell yeah the manual's different and uh you know those things th- there's differences and i know what it was right but uh, that one was the version prior to the final version, which there was almost no changes between the two, almost none. Um, and then, uh, like, we didn't, like, we didn't do, you, we didn't use GitHub. We didn't have a change log, you know. Right. The change log was our daily chat. <laughs> so, yeah, we lost all the other versions except for the, the final one and the almost final one. Uh, we lost the original graphics files. Uh, we have the actual, you know, original prototype, one of one. I have the first PAL one, too. So I do have the first prototype. I do have the first PAL cartridge and the first NTSD. I have those three. And then, you know, when we ordered all the production ones, you know, one of the first things I did is as I assembled my own game, you know, I, I snapped the case together. I snapped, you know, and then I immediately opened it back up. And there's like, oh, shit, there's my own Atari game and a manual. And even though I just assembled it 10 seconds prior, it was like, that was like the the journey from being the dopey kid sitting in front of, 
you know, the TV to actually like, I have, you know, we have made our own Atari game. Um, and it was kind of surreal that it was there. I can, uh, yeah, I can so definitely I, relate to the data loss thing because I've got a uh, book I was, I've been working on now for almost three years. And I had one point uh, almost like a year and three quarters of another year in where I completely lost all the files I was working on due to an OS change. I had moved the, all of my uh, files for the book over to a USB drive, installed the new operating system, plug in the thumb drive, and it's dead. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> yeah, like, what are the odds? And there's somebody out there, you know, somebody who's listening who's going, well, amateur hour, I would never make those. Sure, you would. I, I no, no doubt. Of course, you wouldn't. You alone are uniquely incapable of fucking this up. Everyone. That's why your game is so awesome. Everyone (laughs) makes those mistakes. I mean, it's just like hammering a nail into a board. Eventually, you're going to miss the head of the nail. You're going to smack your thumb with a hammer. You can say you won't do it, but everyone does it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So I do have like, you know, rolled up, uh, you know, actual level map that was hand drawn. I do have these prototypes. So, you know, we, we. we don't lose everything, but yeah, we lost a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, and you know, again, nowadays, man, that would have never ha- that would never happen these days because you know all the the computers are you know all properly on the NAS with NFS. So if I save something to the download folder, it's accessible across every computer on my network. You know, um, it's backed up over two NASs locally across, you know, RAID 5 on two different machines. And then, of course, it goes over to my backup NAS off-site. I would never... I did learn from that mistake. But I made that mistake, and uh, nobody else even thought to archive it, you know. So, uh, I was like, UK Mike and I, he were having this discussion. I was like, yeah, so it's, I think that's all gone. He was like, yeah, I didn't even think to save it. So, you know, it was a team effort, but, uh, you know... We managed to not retain. So now that I look back on it, what company out there that made these great games and all that, there's almost none of them. Like maybe Nintendo and Sony, but they're never going to let you see it ever. Right? Maybe they have archives where they have a lot of this stuff preserved, right? Like Nintendo, you know, it makes me wonder, man, because remember the time like they go after every ROM site ever? But remember the time that they got caught using ROMs off of a ROM site? Right, which makes oh, you wonder, do they the... even have copies of the stuff? <laughs> no doubt. Maybe, just maybe, it was a, a lazy developer who didn't want to, you know, fill out the request form and wait in line and, you know, have his manager's manager ask why you need access to the Mario ROM when, in fact, you're making a Mario act, you know. Um, maybe he's like, I'm not having that stupid discussion with Steve again. I'm not doing it. And he just got off a website. We don't know. Or maybe Nintendo doesn't have an archive and they lost everything. You know, any of these things are possible. And that's but a huge reason I don't know why for them. my ROM collection, um, it's mirrored. Like, I've got a copy of it. I've got it saved to the cloud. My buddy has a copy of it because I'm scared to death. Like, with the ROMs, yeah, they're easily available now, but like, with the way the internet's going, with the way censorship's going, I know this is going in a completely different direction. Is this stuff going oh, to be available? Oh, but a vital one. A vital one. Yes, sir. 
Um, that's why I'm sitting on over a petabyte of storage space in front of me here because uh, I archive everything. Because today you can go to the website, you can find one that the program that you were going to watch is no longer there. Or even a greater sin is that they've censored it to account for problematic content. Mm-hmm. Oh, you mean something that stood for 40 years until it didn't meet the wokest of the woke criteria from, you know, the 52nd week of 20, you know, 22, not the 51st, because on the 51st week, that was fine and good. On the 52nd week, now it's inappropriate, so you're going to delete it. What will you delete tomorrow? Right. I mean, if you've ever read the book 1984, isn't it kind of funny that Winston's job was to literally delete things that were inconvenient to the establishment, you know? We're living um, in that age so now. <laughs> I mean, we we're are there. A hundred percent. It is, and, you know, it's almost codified. Well, it is being codified by law. Um, you know, the old political commissars, like, you know, if you look back at the Soviet Union, you can say, how could they be such stupid, servile scum? I mean, they had a commissar, a political officer in their factory that monitored their speech. How different is that today? Right. <laughs> you know, the new commissar just sits in the HR department. Yeah, and it's uh, same thing under so, a yeah, different man, name. That's right. And, and. You know, to steer it back into the, uh, the video game world and all, if you're not archiving your ROMs, man, do not trust, do not believe that they will always be available easily. Now, like, I'm always going to, because people like me and you, right, we have curated this ROM collection. We have deduplicated things. We've, you know, made sure that we have working ones. We've, you know, we, we have arc as many systems. We have got this thing. Oh, no, if somebody ever approached us and said, hey, dude, here's a USB stick. Can you hook me up? Love to, right? Mm-hmm. But as far as mass availability, uh, yeah, you can't trust that that's going to be here today, tomorrow, or the net, you know, the day after. And there's so, already um, stuff in my collection that if I were to go online and look for, I couldn't find it. Like, there's stuff in there, especially absolutely. for the PlayStation stuff. I've got, like, uh, PlayStation demo discs from like magazines and whatnot to where if you were to go look on like archive.org or something today, which is where a lot of people go to find this stuff, you wouldn't find it because it was hosted on, uh, I believe it was, uh, good Lord. The the site was known for their, uh, MAME ROMs, but they had collections for everything. And, uh, like I said, one day they shut the lights and they're gone. And all those files, if you didn't get them, they're gone. And yeah, and some of those things are more, you know, I mean, cause someone will point out, oh, but I can find all of the, you know, Fairchild files, but 10 years ago, I couldn't find any. I mean, not, it doesn't all go uniformly in one direction, but you're either a liar or a fool if you don't think that is the overwhelming trend. And yeah, man, I mean, get it while you can archive it and preserve it. But that to me, I mean, kind of the final point I think I want to make about the magic of Atari and, you know, the endearing part of that era is, like, I'm a physical collector. I like having the thing. Like, my buddy UK Mike, he likes having the ROM, the game. He doesn't feel the need to have, like, a whole lot of the original physical hardware. He has a 
more limited collection because he just doesn't have that same compulsive drive. I want to have the thing, you know, the actual mm-hmm. thing. And to me, that is like, you know, I, I, I don't dislike modern games at all. And I look at like, say, okay, I got my PS5, you know, it's sitting up there, the Switch, the Xbox, all, all the new systems are sitting up there. I mean, on the, the screen here in the studio, I've got the Super Mario Brothers Wonder sitting there, literally on the screen with the Switch. I want to go in and I want to buy tons of games and I want to have tons of great content to play and I want to see this continue. I don't dislike modern games. But the thing is, it, it, and I I know my purchasing window is coming to a close. I'm not going to, because of all these reasons we discussed in the last 10, 15 minutes, I'm not going to go buy a, a digital copy. I won't do it. One, because manufacturers, man... All they want to do is get rid of that physical media so they can charge the same price and pocket five more bucks. You know, Not only that, they or, want you to or, repurchase I mean, everything again. How many times has yes. someone bought Super Mario Brothers? Uh, well, I got it back whenever it was on the regular Nintendo. I got the upgraded version on the Super Nintendo. I got it on the Wii. I got it on the Wii U. I got it on the little handheld game. And I mean, they want you to buy the game 15 times. <laughs> Or exactly. even worse, and, they want and, you to subscribe you know, to be able to play it. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I, that, no, sir, I'm not doing it. But, you know, I, I, I have absolutely, uh, I won't do it. You know, I won't buy the digital only. So when, you know, I can, st- like, I've still got this cartridge for this Switch. I've still got the disc for the PlayStation. Now, how practical a lot of stuff turns out to be with its survivability and all, but, there will be a point at which somebody makes a cartridge for the Switch that holds every ROM and jailbreaks it from just power up. With it. It, it, all these things happen. Every mm-hmm. console gets cracked. None of these things are immune. Oh, that's why I don't even sweat it these days, man. I just update my current console to the latest firmware. I buy all the games. I, I, I don't even care about like downloading the new Mario Wonder. I want to go buy it because, one, I want them to make another. and I want to have the physical cartridge. But, dude, if you don't think for a second, I won't download every ROM never was. Yes, I will. But as I said earlier, that does not in any way, uh, the existence of those ROMs prevent me from buying a quality product. Clearly, Nintendo, I got the Switch. I got the Wii. I got bought every damn console they made. I've got cases and cases of the actual physical media that I bought. You know, they got my money. But yeah, dude, no, I'm going to archive every ROM. I'm going to sit there and I'm going to play Mario on, you know, RetroPie. And no, I'm not going to feel bad about it. No, I'm not stealing from you. And you'll be okay, Nintendo. Yep, because um, we've already paid like, for it no, 15 times over. <laughs> exactly. But like, you know, like say with uh, Atari, just to go, you know, back to Atari, a company that has the Atari name, that's not Atari. And none of the original guys are there. It's not, you know, it's just, somebody that bought a name and they're going to release a product, right? What right do they have in any way claim some sort of control ownership over my collection? Right. And the beauty of the Atari era, especially 2600 era is I've got the Atari console right here. I've got the harmony card that has every wrong ever made on an SD card. I can play the crap out of it. And I have a physical copy 
of every single game I can think of, uh, except for maybe a few like the others oh, one or sticks or I think I think I even have one one was only six. But I've got all these games, and at, there is literally nothing, nothing that Atari, the current rights holders, can do to reach into my collection and damage or disable those games. But if you have a manufacturer that's got access into your console, man, the future is going to be you know like quicksand. It's it, nothing it's to be, be solid. You thought you had that game, now it's gone. Uh, but before you, you wrap up, uh, I do want to ask, even though you've gone over it on a retro gaming roundup many a time, uh, childhood memories, favorite 2600 games. What have you got? Well, I guess my sort of my first exposures to it, right? Because, you know, I got a computer very early on. I was playing, like, games like Ultima, you know, which were just unbelievable in their scope and their their incredible, you know, worlds, you know. Yep. Um, Ultima 4 I, is still I, a favorite of mine. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I didn't in any way feel like I didn't have sufficient video game. Oh, and then when a Commodore hit and all that. Um, but I always felt pretty happy with computers. But when uh, when the 2600 was the dominant, not just, you know, business-wise, but socially when you're a kid. And, you know, you remember all the great fads of the 70s and 90s and all that stuff. Um, you wanted to be a part of that. You know, that was the part of the scene of your childhood. So for me, uh, there's a kid, his name was Sean. And like, you know, back in the day, you like, you know, there's no cell phones. You know, you're, you're, you came home at dark and your mom, you know, had dinner ready, whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember my friend Sean, we would just make arrangements like, um, hey, let's spend a night over at Sean's place, right? So, you know, I would, from Sean's telephone, you know, call my mother, call my home number. And, you know, my mother was there. I'm like, hey, mom, I'm going to stay over at Sean's house tonight. We're going to play Atari and all. And my other friend Josh would stay there. And so he had a, a Atari, you know, and uh, neither of us did. I remember like sitting there and we're just whopping out cartridges one after the other. It goes in the slot, chunk, turn it on. Let's play this one. And we're just having the best time ever playing this Atari. And, uh, you know, that kind of, you know, early first experience, you know, because, uh, I mean, not everybody, when we look at release dates, okay, 1985, the Nintendo Entertainment System, you know, was, all right, almost nobody walked into the store in the 85 and bought a Nintendo and began their collection. It's not like it is today. Right. And, you know, any of your listeners, if they weren't alive or, old enough to remember all this one of the huge takeaways i hit on this you know early in our talk um one of the takeaways here is how slowly this whole ball got rolling and yeah man like there was no shit a period of time where you know the the atari was emerging like like four years after it was originally put on the marketplace was maybe the first time that many people sat down and experienced it and then ended up buying one for themselves. So See, it, it wasn't in, like, all right. In my case, I got it as a hand-me-down system because I got it back when the Nintendo was Many big. people did. But dear God, the game collection was amazing. I think I can't tell you how many hours I sat. And uh, great example, a horrible port, Pac-Man for the Atari 2600. I played the hell out of it. Why? Because that was the version I had. 
I didn't have the Miss Pac-Man superior version. I had the significantly worse version. And I knew, even at that age, because I've seen Pac-Man in the arcade, I'm here like, this looks nothing like the game I'm familiar with, but it kind of plays like... So, I played it. Uh, good port, Space Invaders. I played Space Invaders like crazy. Uh, Pitfall, to me, looked amazing on that system. Played the hell of Asteroids. I mentioned E.T. a few times. Uh, Demon Attack, I played a lot of... Uh, and then later on, I've rediscovered games that were huge back then that I had never heard of. Yars Revenge, huge game for the system because I didn't get it in that hand-me-down collection. I never played it until years later. Star Wars Empire Strikes Back, same thing. Crazy good game. I didn't have it until years later, though, so I didn't play it. <laughs> and, and that is a huge thing to, you know, for any of your listeners that were not there in the day or don't remember it or, you know, or any like, let's say, you know, you're 25 years old and you found a podcast and you're listening to it, right? The thing is, our life wasn't like your life today. We didn't have social media. We didn't have uh, online things. You know, if you like if your local arcade did not have Tempest, guess what? You never played Tempest. Unless you're traveling on vacation and there's a Tempest there. But for the most part, you is somebody had to have that game, that arcade game, that pinball in your town, in an establishment that you visited for you to have ever played it. And like the Vectrex, the Vectrex was really cool. I saw a picture of it in a comic book, okay? It was not available, like no store carried it, so I couldn't even play the store demo version, okay? It, no friend had it. It wasn't a thing. I saw a picture of it. I knew it existed until like I downloaded the first emulator pack and started playing it. I had never played one, right? And now I love the thing. You know, it's a great system. But, you know, just because it existed back in the day doesn't mean that you ever got a chance to play it. You know, today, pretty much everything's available. You know, any game is released on all systems. If you have one of the three major systems, you pretty much have the ability to play any game instantaneously on demand, right? We didn't have that. So, uh, yeah, you know, it was a whole different world, man. Um, a great example for me would that, be the uh, Sega Master System. I didn't know it existed. I'm, like, looking at everything for the Genesis. I thought it was Sega's first system for the longest time until um, I got another hand-me-down system, and it was a Sega Master System with, like, 12 or 15 games. I'm like what's this? It has Sega on it, but this is not a Genesis. And, you know, you pop in the games, and they're competing with the uh, NES games in many cases, and it, it was mind-blowing, because I had no clue this thing even existed. <laughs> well, sure, and, and, you know, man, some of those uh, Master System ports were, you know, spot on. Like, who would ever thought Golden Axe would be on that, you know? And it's a good port of it. Uh, Space um, Harrier yeah, it, was a shocking one for me. Uh, the The biggest shock in that one uh, was probably the Ghostbusters game on that, because it was like the NES game, but it was actually like really good. Uh, it was based off the NES version, but like the Master System versus the NES for that game was night and day. Oh, absolutely, man. So, you know, for me, the permanency of the Atari collection... And, you know, it gets older and older each year. It's kind of crazy. Like, I remember, you know, when video games uh, 
had turned 40. Like, when Computer Space and uh, The Odyssey hit 40 years old. And that seemed like, and all of a sudden it was 50. You know, and, you know, like, for me, I, I can't conceive of a time, uh, you know, before TV. I, I mean, I certainly can. Like, I, 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 but I didn't live it. I didn't experience it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love radio. I love, like, you know, old school sci-fi radio plays and all that. Um, I, I, you know, being a, a ham radio and electronics guy, you know, I certainly own a whole bunch of tube radios. It's not an alien technology to me. I grew up, you know, with a CRT TV with manual, you know, tuners and um, all that stuff was normal. But TV just kind of always was. There were shows from the 50s in black and white, you know, like the honeymooners. And it seems like it always was. But, you know, you talk to your parents, your, you know, like your grandparents who served in World War II, and it's like, oh, yeah, I remember when TV came along. And you're like, whoa, you know. And it's kind of funny today. Like, you know, I talk to some of the younger people I work with, and they're in their mid-20s, you know. And they, to them, just the world without the Internet is kind of odd to them um but it was a totally different without, era you, know, you didn't ha- you weren't able to like whip your phone out of your pocket and look something up if you didn't have that information and you just didn't have that information unless you like maybe it was in the library or something there was no way to get that information it was a completely different world yeah and and, and uh you know it would i say that it was better less than whatever Nah, they're just different. But exactly. That's yeah. I mean, you know, it. for for us today, you know, you you talk to these young people, and they're trying to put the Atari, its library, all that, into their framework, right? Uh, where like you know, the day that the the PS4 launched, they got one and they had access to a whole bunch of games and you know, instant Facebook and Discord and about it. Uh now, now, man, it was a much much slower roll a much slower revelation um, at a slower pace, you know, even though your kid thinks seems so frantic and so new. But, um, yeah, I, I think the Atari was just, you know, to truly understand it, you have to kind of take a step back and look at the era if you didn't grow up in that era. And, uh, you know, things were all new, like home computers. Our generation, we got the first home computers. We got the first consoles. It was the first of all this stuff, you know? So, you know, whereas the iteration of the latest television set isn't all that exciting, the first, you know, one was kind of a big deal. And that's how it is with the Atari, too. It was this incredible experience to watch it evolve, to watch it literally be born, to watch it evolve, to watch it kind of go away, to watch the company flitter away its potential. Um Man, yeah, that was a whole different experience. And I, I'm I'm glad I lived through it and saw the, you know, there's certain, like, all cars will be old cars. Not all cars will be classic cars, you know. Exactly. Um, no one's so, shopping for the Pinto these days. <laughs> actually, that's the weird thing is somebody, you, you show, like, I go to this car show uh, near, you know, uh, the house. And, like, you show up there with, uh, you know, Lotus, Ferrari, Lambo. You're one of... 12, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, like if I, you go to lo- a local car show, yeah, you'd probably be the only one there, right? Okay, cool. But you go to like Cars and Coffee, man, uh, you're you're one of a dozen, if not one of 20. 
and you're not, it's not that special. I take like, I take my 82 Subaru to that car show and people lose their minds. You know, like, you know, you, you bring out like, you know, the, the, the 360 and people are like, Oh, another Ferrari. You bring out like 82 Subaru, but Holy shit, man. And I, that's the weird thing is now we're in this weird era where you, you break out the, uh, you know, the Pinto and you're like, you have a running surviving Pinto with all like, like the day it came off the showroom floor, you got something people hadn't seen. It was a huge part of their life. And if they mocked it, like, come on, the samurai. We, <laughs> we roasted, we roasted the Suzuki samurai, right? Mm-hmm. And now people would like, you know, kill for one, you know? Um, it's just funny how that happens. Um, but yeah, I mean, like that, the Atari man, 77, right? We, we, you know, we had the 50 years of Atari, you know, as a company, um, that was, uh, just done. Uh, they did a beautiful game with, with that sort of a, a interactive museum. Oh yeah. Atari uh, 50. Yeah. 50 years. It was really, I have well to made. say, and like I said, I might have every Atari ROM ever made and Atari completely screwed up delivering the, you know, what if Atari never went away and I didn't buy these. Yes. I'm not going to buy one. It's crap. And I didn't, I didn't choose to not buy it. Because I have ROMs. That's not why I didn't buy it. I, bought, I didn't buy it because it was shit. But at 50 years of Atari, wonderfully produced, take my money. I, I couldn't wait to buy their product. And guess what? I had all the ROMs. So, sorry, yeah. you know. Uh, I mean, just, I w- just like the same thing these days, although we joke about the Pinto or anything, you know, I'm going to go work on the Coronet before I work on the Pinto. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, come on. Um, but no, that that is the cool thing about the Atari era, is you know we look at it and you know that twenty six hundred is it's coming up on fifty years, man, which is kind of crazy. But you know, at some point, uh, we'll remember like uh, you know when when you and I are sitting there at you know eighty years old, which isn't forever off. You know, it's closer than it is further. And you're like, man, what? One day I'll be sitting there not saying, oh, video games are 40. They're 50. There's uh, video games are 80 years old now. Mm-hmm. And you'll have that original Atari with those original cartridges. And you'll have that same ability to experience exactly what you experienced then. Um, that you, you're probably not going to have with a lot of systems. So it, it's never a bad time to collect these. I mean, I would say they have roughly the same availability and roughly the same pricing as they did 10, 20 years ago. You know, same thing like the Model T. People think it's rare. Now, there's probably a Model T or Model A for sale within one hour of your house, and it's under $20,000, and it's great. So it's attainable. You can buy an Atari. You can buy games. You can buy a multi-cart, and it'll cost you, like, for the cost of three modern games. You can buy an Atari, a multi-cart, and some cool stuff to go with it. And you you can achieve this. You can collect this, and you can enjoy it. And maybe you'll go on to make your own Atari game. And I want to close up by saying that the 2600 is not dead even today. Like, the, November 17th, they're releasing another console that isn't the Atari 2600. They're releasing cartridges for the thing. It's called the 2600 Plus. It's got, you know, cartridges of adventure, combat, video pinball, Yars Revenge. Uh, It runs on a USB. 
So it's not a dead system. Definitely go back and collect the original stuff. But don't think it's dead. The, the stuff is still out there. It's not Atari anymore. It's a completely different name. But I love to see the fact that the legacy that those people created back then, it, it's still living on today. Yeah, and you know, a lot of those guys, they're... A lot of them are just now hitting their retirement age. I mean, uh, uh, you know, they're in their late 50s because they were just a few years older than us in some cases, you know. Um, some of them in their late 50s, 60s, 70s, and some of them we've already lost. I mean, you know, Keith and Ted and so many of those guys that, you know, have passed away, uh, you know, their stories hopefully – you know, a lot of it got preserved. Uh, some of it will be lost. Um, but, you know, there, there will be a point. Like, like you think of the most famous guys from, like, the 20s, right? Mm -hmm. Marx Brothers, you know? Okay, you know, but there was a point at which, you know, Marx Brothers movies, it's still out there. If you're a aficionado, you'll seek it out. But, like, all right, who was, like, the big guy in music entertainment? Uh, you know, a guy by the name of Eddie Cantor, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, if you watch Boardwalk Empire. They'll see like Eddie Cantor referenced and and they'll like he would be at a party, you know, and you're like, holy shit, man, that was, you know, but there's a point like who really goes back. You can list like we're all still listening to Led Zeppelin, right? How many Eddie Cantor albums do you have and how often do you does he come up in the day? Right. Right. So all things evolve, man. I mean, at some point, I hate to say it, but you, know, you and I are probably be, you know, as we're, you know, Shuffling off and dying, you know, somebody out there will want our collections. And, you know, I, I've always, I kind of turned a corner on thinking about collecting in a way where, you know, a, a great car collector that I like, he said something cool that, you know, we are the custodians of these cars, you know, yeah, we own them. Like we can go out there and melt them down or hot rod. We can do anything we want to do. But ultimately, I don't know, like two owners back, I don't know who owned this car. And, you know, like in, you know, 50 years, whoever owns this car won't know and probably won't care about me. Mm -hmm. I'm not owning this car forever. I'm the custodian of it during my time, you know, and that is really, you know, Chris, how I look at collecting and how I've come to look at, like, say, the Atari era is right now I am the custodian of this collection. I didn't create it. Well, not all of it. I created a tiny, tiny little bit, but I didn't create it. I didn't, uh, you know, I bought some of it original, some of it secondhand, you know, but I've amassed this collection of all this original hardware as many, many people have. And one day this won't be mine. You know, I, I unless, you know, there's some crazy advances in medical science where I radically roll back my high risk lifestyle there is about a thousand percent absolute chance that in 50 years I will not be alive and that these games will be in somebody else's collection who's going to sit there and go, hey, guys, why don't we roll over to my place tonight? I'm going to break up my 100-year-old video game system and we're going to play a game. And somebody will pull out the Atari that at one point I own that they have no idea who the fuck I am. Or, like, I don't know the kid that originally owned my main 2600 that's on top. I have no idea what kid got that on Christmas morning. That is gone. It's lost forever to history. So at some point, somebody, you know, 50 years from now is going to pull out the Atari that I was custodian of, and they're going to go, hey, man, 
I got this hundred year old video game system. And, you know, how cool is that? But, you know, it's it's the moment we live in. To me, it's not only about keeping that legacy alive, but it's like remembering how much fun and joy this stuff brought to you and hoping that you can uh, give someone else that same experience at a later time. Oh, absolutely, man. And that, that is one of the fun parts about it that never gets old. And that's why, you know, like you're doing what you're doing right now is you're you're being a, you're fulfilling the role of an amateur historian. You know, you're 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 documenting, you know, interviews of people that had hands on experience in the era. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so important. I mean, you know, right now, like our World War Two veterans are the last of them, the guy that was like 17 and a half when he hit the beaches at Normandy is now trying going to be here in a couple of years. Right. Right. And you know, like we grew up with world war two veterans as our grandparents, our, my bus driver was a world war two veteran. You know, that dude barely survived the Pacific. You think he gave the slyest of shits. If you were late for the bus, nope, off he goes, you can run to school, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> And, you know, it was that no coddling, no bullshit, you know, you know, I survived, you know, Japanese flamethrowers. So the least you can do is show up to the bus on time, you know, and it taught us something we learned from it. And, you know, you look at their history and knowing people that had those experiences, you know, um, you know, video games, it's not the same thing, man. I mean, you know, come on, it's video games, but it's still a huge part of, you know, tech of Americana, of culture, of of you know civilization and it's art it, it it's as valid as any other art expression and you know here we are like you're, you're creating a recorded oral history of the era as a historian and we you know me you and so many of your listeners are preso- preserving these collections in our you know climate controlled spaces and you know careful maintenance and cleaning and you know we're the we're the archivist. We're we're the guys, man. I mean, some you know, somebody at the Smithsonian fifty years from now that never played an Atari once will put on their blue gloves and pull back the white, you know, cloth and oh, this is one of our collections of a one hundred year old video game system, right? And they'll think that they're somehow the official record and maintainer of this. Now, nah, someone's gonna go back and listen to uh, your podcast and you know, maybe they'll be the one that actually ends up owning your 2600. We're the real archivists. We're the pros. We're the guys that matter. Um, you know, yeah, it's great if official institutions do it, but eh, this is the real deal. And that's why I give a uh, another plug to Retro Gaming Roundup, because like the back catalog, there are so many snapshots in time with all the interviews all the top tens of people who have actually sat down and played and grew up with these games. Like, you know, not only is there the physical games, but there's the emotion behind it. And I feel that's something that needs documented too. Absolutely. And that's why we do what we do, man. But uh, is there anything else you want to hit before we wrap up? Uh, any, any, no, last- that's, 
probably it. I appreciate you taking your time out of your uh, day to talk to me, though. I really appreciate it. And if you want, before we go, if you want to give a, another shout-out to Retro Gaming Roundup and uh, CGE Adventures, which, by the way, the ROM is available at RetroGamingRoundup.com if you want to play. And I do believe there are still some physical copies left if you'd like to get your own copy. Ah, uh, sort of. So funny enough, you know, people say, well, the, the guy, you know, well, I am the guy, and I got the box right here. Um, I think I've got like six cartridges left, maybe. Um, I mean, look, you know, we, we, we sold a, a ton of them first and then, you know, you kind of saturate the market. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think I do have like, I, I don't think we have any manuals left. I think we have like six cartridges and boxes and we're out of PAL. None of those left. So I think maybe I've got, and you know, the boxes, you know, like, you know, it's not like I keep these framed on a rack next to my weapon ready to go out the door right no, they're in a box in a plastic tub next to my christmas decorations sorry you know there's no glass wall museum in the basement for you know the game um which makes you wonder just in general like you know for the others like if this is our archive standard like i literally have a rubbermaid tote that has all the, the cases and the cartridges and the manuals and stuff um you know Sometimes there's nothing. There's no, there's no extras or preservation. So, you know, um, it's interesting. It's interesting to see the other side of it and go, oh, that's why people don't have nice things. <laughs> now, a uh, chunk of my collection is currently in totes too, so I totally get that. But uh, yeah, anyone who wants to play the game, uh, it from is directly available. Uh, it's definitely worth playing in my opinion just to get a snapshot of uh, the entire development history that Scott explained earlier uh, once again I want to appreciate and thank you for uh, taking the time out to uh, talk to me about the history of Atari and branching out into the uh, CG adventures uh, do you want to give a quick plug to well yeah uh, absolutely do you want to give another yeah, uh, I mean I quick? think you're kind of <laughs> Well, I, I think you kind of gave a really good plug there. Um, our show's out there forever. You know, we don't charge for it. We don't monetize it. We don't, you know, we have a couple of sponsors and that lets, like, when we go to, like, Blackpool and we, you know, book a booth and it's, you know, 500 bucks, it, it, it's not coming out of our pockets. It, it's graciously donated by listeners. So, you know, okay, we're all going to buy plane tickets. We're going to go over there, spend a couple thousand. And the fact that, you know, we sold some games or, you know, somebody donated, you know, some money because they like the content. It makes it a little easier to do those things. And we, we definitely appreciate that. But, uh, you know, the, the plug I would give is is really to the listener who who is, you know, hearing your podcast and says, you know, and maybe I could make my own. Well, go out there and do it because I'd like to buy it. <laughs> you know, I want to have more classic, you know, kick-ass, you know, games on that platform. So, um, you know, yeah, dude, if you think you can make your own, or even if you think you can't, uh, look into it, give it a try. It's probably more achievable than you thought. Absolutely. Like, so there's tons of creativity out there and, uh, I would love to see more as well, but, uh, I guess we'll close it out with that, man. Uh, once again, I appreciate you taking your time out of your day to, uh, come and chat with me. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Fun experience. Yep. Thank you. 
the fun is back. Oh, yes, sirree. It's the 2600 from Atari. It's the video system with classics galore. From space invaders to cars that roar. A real hip joystick controls the screen. Solaris is hot and midnight magic's mean. And one more thing, it's got a special low price. Under 50 bucks. 50 bucks? Now, isn't that nice? The fun is back. Oh, yes, sirree. It's the 2600 from Atari. Something's coming up the plumbing for Luigi's in a bind. Giant turtles out to get him. Creepy crabs are right behind him. Fireflies, jeepers, shites, they're all coming out the pipes. Mario, where are you? It's Atari Mario Brothers with Mario from Donkey Kong, his brother Luigi, and lots of crazy creatures. And it's twice the fun when two play at once, because you need all the help you can get. Mario, where are you? Mario Brothers, new from Atari. on your Atari 2600 for just $34.97. Frogger, $28.97. Popeye, $34.97 at Toys R Us. Also available for Atari 5200, ColecoVision, and Intellivision. Get in on the Parker trade-in rebate. Buy two select Parker cartridges, send proof of purchase, and any old cartridge, and get $15 back. You're a kid, right? Wrong! You're a gorilla being chased by wild warriors. You're playing Amidar, the challenging new home video game. You've outsmarted the warriors and won, right? Wrong! Now you're a paint roller being chased by pigs. Amidar is action-packed like the arcade game and lots of fun. You've won, right? Wrong! You're a gorilla again, only now the game's faster. But you're ready for Amidar, right? Right. From Parker Brothers, the ones to beat. They think I'm trapped. But I'll escape. Tunnel Runner, the new video game where you don't look down on the maze. You're in it. Monster! He's smart. I can't outsmart him. Oh, he's fast. I gotta be faster. Tunnel Runner with Ram Plus to mega charge your Atari VCS for three times the excitement. Right. Left. Better check them out. It's the exit! To another maze. Tunnel Runner from CBS Electronics, where the excitement never ends. I'm not trapped. I'm not trapped. Thank you. 
I would like to thank you for taking us into your homes. We wish you all a happy holiday. You mean you have an Atari video game system, but not Atari Missile Command? Well, then you must have Defender. Great game. Or a challenge like Star Raiders. What about Yars Revenge? Well, you gotta have Berserk, right? And Atari Space Invaders, a classic. You don't? Come on. An Atari system without those games? That's like having a stereo with no hit records. The world's greatest arcade video games are now the world's greatest home video games. They're only from Atari, and only for systems from Atari. Which means that when you play them on an Atari home video game system, you'll see amazing graphics. Like this. Thrilling action. Like this. It also means that if you try to play them on anything but an Atari system, you'll see something like this. Attention shoppers. The new Atari cartridge game is in. Excuse me. Uh-oh. Doors again. Atari's ASD battle. It comes with 27 games, but that's just for starters. You can get nine cartridges, 187 games. Blackjack. I'd like an Atari. Sorry. Only our demonstrators left. Mine! No, George. Mine. The new video computer system by Atari. More games, more fun. Yes? You look like a real jerk. Well, I am a corporate executive. He stops exciting things from happening. So what you doing? Well, Muffy Buffy Biff Jr. and I are going on our Sunday drive. Oh, no, you're not. You're going to play pole position! Games from Atari, the number one video computer system with more games than any other. Everyone's gone Atari, the number one video game. Did you try Breakout with a Ming Wall? Did you try Breakout with an extra ball? It's what fun's all about. It's Super Breakout. It's a brand new game from Atari. You played Atari today. If you liked Breakout, you'll love Super Breakout. It's got more color, more sound, and more action. And naturally, it's from Atari. Have you played Atari today? I've been hearing the so-called sports expert talk about his realistic home video baseball game. Well, I've played real baseball. 
and I also played the new Atari Real Sports Baseball, and I like it. Because I can sacrifice fly as well as steal, pick off runners. Hey, it's baseball like baseball should be played. And who are you going to listen to anyhow? That other guy who just talks baseball? Or a nice guy like me who lives it? New Real Sports Baseball, one in a series only from Atari. Out here we entertain ourselves at home, so we got an Atari video game. There's so many different games to play. We especially like Space Invaders, zapping those little devils from outer space. It's fun, but personally I think the whole idea of creatures from outer space is a little far-fetched. No other company offers you as many different video game cartridges as Atari. Activision presents the creepiest video game ever seen on the Atari 2600. Fighter, fighter, by Activision. Use your bug blaster to fight off swarm after swarm of very spooky spiders. Spiders, silly the spiders. Jumping line, multiplying spiders, silly the spiders. Bouncing, punching, watch out, crunching. Spider, fighter. Spider, fighter, designed by Larry Miller for Activision. systems from Atari. Have you played Atari today? Two more smash hits from Atari. The centipedes are coming. Get your fingers moving fast and the spiders like to get you. Do you think that you can last? The scorpions are dancing and the fleas are like a jet. If you're looking for some action centipedes, the game to get. And get Ms. Pac-Man with four screens, floating fruit, even pretzels. Centipede and Ms. Pac-Man, only from Atari. Which of you Imagic experts has created the toughest game for Atari's video system? Oh, oh, we, we, demon attack! Move over, fire breath. You not good enough for demon attack! You win for the moon! I'm winning! Good work, Voltar. Demon attack really is tough. Imagic team and attack. In television version, coming soon. Stalked, pursued, chased by a giant squid. You are the dolphin. You must swim, weave, dive to escape. And you must watch the surface for the magic seagull. Then jump. Touch the gull and the power to turn to chase. The squid is yours. The squid has no more. Another squid takes his place. You are the dolphin. For the Atari 2600, Dolphin. Designed by Matthew Hubbard for Activision. My whole life has changed since the award-winning Frogger home video game became so popular. Frankly, I'm swamped by admirers. So to get away from it all, I reach for Frogger. It's a challenge, Ribbit. Because the better you are, Ribbit, Ribbit, the harder Frogger is to play. Oops. Ladies first. Hmm, do they love me? Or my Frogger? Frogger, Sega's arcade game, now a home video game from Parker Brothers, the ones to beat.
Ferrari 2600. Can you endure? Enduro. Designed by Larry Miller for Activision. Just last night, I was lost in the jungle with Pitfall Harry, surrounded by giant scorpions and man-eating crocodiles. Well, Harry and I just grabbed the van, swung through the trees, and over the tar pits and found the jungle treasure. It was really neat. If you haven't met Pitfall Harry, you're missing the year's most incredible video game adventure. Pitfall for the Atari 2600 and in television. Since I met Pitfall Harry, no other man will do. Pitfall, designed by David Crane for Activision. Pac-Man into your Atari video computer system and you're playing the hottest games in Space Invaders, Atari Pac-Man. Better looking. <laughs> the new Popeye video game available for most popular home video and computer systems. We can't turn back. Have a raid target at 039. Under control. Approaching an airspeed. Way to go. Taking West Canyon. Good call. Fuel critical, sir. Chopper's at 3 o'clock. Roger, I copy. Time's closing, sir. I direct something. No, he'll decide that. Fuel critical, sir. He knows that. Sir, he's off for the East Canyon. Negative. That's a trap. River 8, don't. Sweet home and River 8. Can you make it? River 8, can you make it? It's only a game. River Raid for the Atari video computer system. Designed by Carol Shaw for Activision. I'll blow this town to smithereens. Time bombs. Try to get up there in time, Spider-Man. Watch me cut my web, goblin. Watch yourself fall, Silk Slinger. Can't stop the bombs in time. If I don't get you webhead by day, you now this will. Holy hell. And you're running out of fluid. Is this more action than even Spider-Man can handle? Spider-Man, a video game from Parker Brothers, the ones to beat. Star Trek, the game. A game so challenging, you need this combat control panel to play it. Launch photons, fire your phasers, engage warp speed, blast Klingons and alien saucers on your way to the ultimate enemy, Nomad. Is it the most challenging game in the galaxy? It's inhuman. Star Trek from Sega. Get a free Star Trek poster when you play Sega's Star Trek at any Musicland store. The fun is back, as you can see, with the 2600 from Atari. Still under 50 bucks, but wait, there's more. There's a stack of new games at your video store. In real sports boxing, the action's rough. If you're gonna make it, you got to be tough. Midnight Magic is an arcade blast, like a pinball wizard, you got to be fast. Fire Solaris to protect your base, then blast off into hyperspace. The fun is back, oh yes sirree, new 2600 